0: Hey everybody, on today's episode we're discussing The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan movie from 2006. We do recommend you watch the movie ahead of listening to this episode, it would make the conversation more interesting to follow. So Mike, what is The Prestige about? Well John, after
1: several box office flops, Nolan sold out in the most tragic way possible by diving into this true example of garbage IP, tackling what is honestly a misguided and underconsidered take on Harry Potter's in the franchise. In it, Nolan delivers what amounts to a strange cautionary tale about masculine competition, where following a cruel prank carried out by the Weasley trends, Harry Potter sinks into an escalating spiral of perfectionism, obsession, self-destruction, and of course, death, which, Nolan obviously must intertwine with his uni- usual bullshit such as white misunderstood men the importance of art and dead wives creating in reality a film that truly only appeals to JK Rowling Reddit and
0: of course John Devine wow it's 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 incredible
1: <laughs>
0: I <just read> it. <laughs> you're a wizard Johnny <laughs> Welcome to this film, could be your life. <laughs> I didn't have anywhere to go with it, so I, I decided to leave. Everybody, welcome once again to this film could be your life. As always, I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Hello. And yeah, this week we're talking about the Prestige, the 2006 psychological thriller film directed by Christopher Nolan, written by Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan, based on the novel by Christopher Priest, starring Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Michael Caine, Rebecca Hall, Andy Serkis, and of course David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have to bet you Bowie. <laughs> this week, we also have a special guest with us. Uh, Taylor Burgess is joining us live from Philadelphia. M- Taylor, how are you doing?
2: I'm pretty good. How are y'all?
0: Good. It's not really live, I guess, is it? But I was just getting really excited about the sort of you know recording podcast thing we're yeah. doing here. I don't know,
2: like live uh, from Philadelphia has a nice ring to it. You it know? does.
1: Yeah,
0: I like that. Taylor, it was uh, one of the reasons why when we were talking about movies to do, I think you and I both kind of seize on this one because we've known each other for a really long time. Yes. I think we both connected to this movie a lot when we saw it, probably around when it came out, right? In high school. Yes. Uh, is that basically, you know, in talking about our history with this movie, um, we're, we were both pretty sold right from the beginning, right? Has the movie kept that reputation for you over the last 15 years, something like that?
2: Um, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Cause we did, we saw it. I mean, I think we might have actually been in like middle school, if not early high school.
0: Yeah. Late middle school. Cause like, we graduated in 2010, 2006. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, right around there. Yeah. yeah.
2: Quite young. Um, yeah, it did make a very strong impression on me. I sometimes think of this film as maybe the movie I I've seen the most of any film I've seen, Ugh, which is kind Jesus. of weird. <laughs> uh, which I kind of can't believe. Um, my, I, Mike showing like, a lot of his hand already. <laughs> I just gotta say, not not I'm really purposely.
0: Um, but yeah, in terms what? of how
2: it's how it's uh, how it's aged, um, I'm trying to think. Like uh, I, I haven't seen it for like the last ten years until I mm. watched it for this podcast. So I realized that I remembered quite a bit of it. I think that I, I will share some of my thoughts later, but I do think that there's a lot of like emotional threads to it that. I did not notice when I was that age at all. And maybe I think are slightly horrifying or disagree with in some ways now. Um, (laughs) but in general, like, I think in terms of like the overall film, I still find it to be like a kind of zippy, enjoyable watch, which is, you know, kind of what you like when you're in
0: middle school. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in some ways I think I might be pretty similar, um, just in terms of, you know, it had a huge impression on me as a kid, uh, I, I, it's funny. I would have thought it was the first Nolan movie I watched, but when I checked Batman begins came out before this. Oh, so wow. I guess that, that was certainly, I think, cause that was a really big deal for us too. Yeah. Um, but I do think this was the first Nolan movie I saw where like the name Christopher Nolan was like a, a, a big part of the movie. Right. Cause Batman yeah. begins, I think the Batman of it all still overshadowed him as an authorial voice. Um, But but like by this point, it was already a big deal that this guy was directing movies and stuff. And it kind of stuck in my head, I think, as maybe, you know, this and the Dark Knight as being prototypical sort of Nolan movies that I always thought about him when I or thought about these when I thought about him. But yeah, I think I definitely came back to it a few years ago. I guess I'm going to go ahead and start a little bit of my CB defense circuit on this <laughs> other podcast and say, I came back to, it, I was sort of surprised at sort of the opposite, how complex it was, how much more complex it was than I thought. I think that there's, I mean, there's obvious stuff of like, you know, a lot of short fallings that he often has with his storytelling mm-hmm. and a lot of, a lot of really clunky storytelling parts. Yeah. Um, I have two paragraphs about the female characters in this movie oh, and why this one doesn't work. <laughs> um, but like, you know, truthfully, besides that, I think there are a lot of things that I didn't necessarily expect. There, there's there's depth to the especially technical side of the movie that I think really surprised me. Mm. And that I I was kind of I think in some ways it's a little bit underrated because of that. Um, Because a lot of the crazy experimentation that he does with storytelling later, you see the seeds of that happening here. Now, whether or not we always appreciate that complexity is a different conversation. But uh, I don't know. I I think I think it'll be a good conversation because I I was certainly surprised the opposite direction. I think that Mm -hmm. I was like kind of impressed in some ways going back to it after so long. Um, I would, Mike. Af- I or go
2: ahead. I would just amend what I said slightly, and I feel like I came off quite negative. I think that I I broadly agree with that. That like the technical aspects and a lot of the writing is quite sharp. I just I like I, I was surprised in many ways too at parts that have held up quite well. I think it was just some emotional
0: threads that. Yeah, were I think that's totally different. Fair. Yeah, yeah. I, I that, that's a good. I, I think I was mischaracterizing you probably. So yeah. that's that's t- totally fair. Mike, where where about you? I actually don't know if you were like into this movie when it came out or anything you obviously also have a up and down Nolan relationship as we've talked about I was a freshman at
1: Hogwarts and (laughs) learning how to use my wand no um yeah Christopher Nolan man the myth the legend I don't know how we keep talking about this guy um this movie is interesting so I had to be in high school I had actually seen the first Nolan movie I saw. I'm like a, a real head. I saw Memento first, which is kind of crazy. My dad showed me that. Not too young. I probably like 14 or 15. But I saw that at some point right before Batman Begins came out. Because still, it was, I, I just
0: want to know. It's still not like a fun movie to watch, I think, as yeah. a 14 year old, It's about, you know, rape and murder <laughs> and anyway, revenge so story. Say, anyway, this is
2: probably the first time you've mentioned a film that your dad has showed you that didn't. Happened too young maybe Yeah and it probably (laughs) did
1: but anyway um, We'll move on from that so yeah I really I I really Loved Memento I feel like that's perfect For like late middle school early High school boy movie thing of like It goes backwards Ah," Like really freak out about it Um, And then I had seen you know Basically as movies as they came out so I saw You know Batman Begins I saw Dark Knight Saw Inception I think Before I saw this movie this was definitely When I came back to um, and I can't remember if that was in high school or college, which I think was a, a mistake because mm. what I'm just going to read you the note I wrote, found it overrated when I first saw it, still do. Um, <laughs> that's basically how I feel. Brutal. about it. And it's not that it's a bad movie by any stretch. I actually don't think no one really makes bad movies. I think it's a perfectly entertaining movie. I think there are some um, pretty profound, provocative moments in it that like stick with me both visually and in terms of, like, the twist at the end. Um, But I would say this movie is almost, for me, devoid of emotional beats that are effective at all. I I really think um, this is an interesting movie to compare to another one we've done, which is Interstellar, which is a movie I came back to and found more effective, you know, a decade Mm. later this is a movie that I came back to a decade later and found it like even more lifeless somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't mean that to say, again, I'm not trying to like bury it. I actually did enjoy watching it, but I think when it comes to like humanity, when it comes to, uh, real lived characters, this is probably one of like the films that for me at this point, um, exemplifies how hard it seems to be for him to write like true human people. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, they're either these kind of cliche, over the top perfectionists, great men seeking to make history misunderstood, flawed, but still masters of their craft, sort of thing. Or they are just like cardboard cutouts, AKA the women in his movies. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just found that this movie really exemplified some of those flaws, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, yeah. And in the same moment, as you already said, it has some of his best technical work, and it has some of the things that truly go on to define the blockbusters that he's going to make over the rest of his career that are just jaw-dropping. So, uh, yeah, I guess my final answer is my relationship to the movie is complicated. It's just it's it's truly a movie that I neither hate nor love. It's just kind of lukewarm for me, um, and that didn't really change on the rewatch.
0: This is not my opinion but mike would you say maybe a little bit like shades of how we approach temple of doom like when we talked about that how it's like there's so much that you go back and you admire technically yeah but then there's so much else that makes you think okay I don't, i'm not actually here for this yeah really. and i i do want to
1: make sure that we're not too mean to christopher nolan he's not like it's not big <laughs> like temple of doom like to the degree that temple of doom is deeply uh, offensive Uh, But yes, I think that is an astute kind of comparison, especially because it's also sandwiched between movies that I think uh, don't have those flaws. You know what I mean? That end up actually marrying the technical and the storytelling and the human. I mean, he's always got flaws with some of his characterizations. Don't get me wrong. But I do feel like he works out what I find most flawed in this movie, um, just to far more successful degrees in his later works and even the movie before this one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The idea, by the way, of this movie as a bridge between Batman Begins and Dark Knight is pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, but I don't know yeah. if we'll we'll explore that. Uh, last question before we get into this: Anyone read the book? I have read the book. Taylor has. What do you any any thoughts on that, or do you do you want to wait and we can get to that more later? Yeah, because I'm pretty confident, Mike. Do you have anything on the no, book? No, I haven't read it. Yeah, I, I got nothing either. So uh, it's up to you, Taylor. If you want to talk about that more in while we're talking about everything else, or just. Give your thoughts now.
2: Um, I, I have some specific thoughts related to some points later, but yeah, I can say it's a, it's an interesting companion piece to the film and that it's, it's uh and maybe this is unsurprising given the director we're talking about, but it's like a much quieter piece of work. <laughs> you know, like hmm. it's, it, yeah. it, and yeah. it's also, I guess, an interesting note is it's entirely... Um, the uh, diaries that feature prominently in the plot of the film are the entirety of the book. The oh, book is epistemological, that's right? Uh, Epistolary. I actually don't remember epistolar, the term. Yeah, yeah, one of those. Um, but yeah, it's just entirely told through the diaries. Um,
0: that's interesting. Yeah. Which
2: is an interesting conceit that sort of carries over to the film, but not entirely.
0: Does that make the do you do you broadly recommend it would you say
2: yeah, I think so um right. it, it's funny because like you know I given what I mentioned earlier where I feel like I've seen this film about a thousand times uh, and I only read the book once it's certainly less burned into my brain um yeah, but I remember it being an enjoyable if like dry and kind of the typical way that like literary fiction is dry sense so if yeah. that's kind of your thing, you know go for it but if you like like some real you know whiz bang genre action it's it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty dull
0: might be a little bit um, might be a little yeah. bit tough i might i might check that out yeah mike you want to do that a little bit book book club over here
1: <laughs> no i actually really um <laughs> i i like reading i'm definitely a reader i have never been able to get into like a pistol style fiction like yeah, i don't know why right. I, I just like there's a book someone recommended me the other day where it's basically the same thing but in like tweets and I was just like, "Ugh, sounds yeah. terrible. Don't want to read that." Um, yeah. And it's not; it's definitely not a judgment on the the style. I just have never been able to do it. It's something about yeah. me.
0: I think that's fair. I think that's reasonable.
2: It's definitely got to be earned, you know. Like you can't yeah. you can't just do it for no reason. And I do. I mean, the book definitely like uh, buries the twists in similar ways to the film by using the structure of the diaries, which is cool. Um, sure. So it definitely has some like nice kind of emotional payoff in
0: that way, but. Uh, I think with that, we can go ahead and get into maybe some more in-depth conversation about the movie. The way we organize the podcast, we basically divide into a few different sections. We'll start with why this movie works. We'll get into what maybe holds it back. Get into some stray thoughts later that we've each kind of prepared. And then way later, we'll have a dialogue trying to dive deeper into uh, something a little bit outside the movie, maybe. But we start off pretty straightforward, just talking about why this movie works. What is really good about this movie? There's a lot of things that I kind of want to tap here. Um, I think what I want to start with maybe getting into some of the performances, because as much as we may or may not have things to say about the characters later, (laughs) I think there's a lot of really amazing performances in this movie. I just have to start with what blows me away the most. and was basically the one thing I was thinking about most directly when I was referencing being... Impressed by the technicality of the movie going back to it. Mm. And that is that Christian Bale, Batman yeah. himself, yeah. is playing two characters. So, oh, well, spoilers. Dude, <laughs> we, what? We already got... <laughs> I, I guess I said that at the beginning. Uh, so Christian Bale <laughs> is playing a character that for the majority of the movie, you believe is one character. And That's at the not end, true. of course the t- at the end, of course, the twist <laughs> ending is you discover that is two different people as brothers. What a twist. Um I, despite what Mike says, I'm, I'm going to head off that whole thing real quick and just say I was surprised the first time. I think it's a good twist. Are we? Do we? Are we going to have that conversation, Mike? For real? Yeah. Do you think there. it was? I, we'll get there, I guess. But I don't have that much patience for the like film bro. Like, it's not a film oh, bro. I knew it was coming, man. I could see it clearly. Christian Bale. Minutes.
1: What am I? Okay, go on. Just go. <laughs> At any rate,
0: the fact that you can rewatch the movie. And this is really what I was trying to talk about. The fact that you can rewatch the movie and cleanly pick out the two different personalities, yes. the two different mannerisms, there the two go. different uh, postures and speaking styles. And and it's actually, there's some really unreal acting in that one performance, right? The way Completely that agree. he comes across like the the, the hot-headed brother, the, the brother that's calmer. Like you just really see the, the difference between the two of them. And I think that was the thing that is why, first of all, just broadly makes the movie really uh, rewarding on Mm. the rewatch, which I guess I hadn't really noticed maybe until 10 years had passed or whatever. Mm. But secondly, I think is definitely the kind of thing that Christian Bale would be good at. You know, I feel like it's such a good like it's the perfect glove for the hand of Christian Bale as an actor that he you know that he was geeking out. Calling Christopher Nolan at like 3 a.m. Like, oh, what if he had this thing on his head? You know, like he was coming up with all these ideas for the ways that the character expresses or sorry, that the performance expresses two different characters. I think that, again, I kind of consider that like a technical thing because it's all very like, you know, acting chops. Um, But I just think that's actually really impressive. And and I think he does bring across a lot of layers to the character in a really interesting way and, and just kind of knocks it out of the park. Uh, anything on Christian Bale, Mike?
1: Yeah, I think he's the best part of the movie. I mean, I don't think it's, I'll be honest. I don't really think it's that close. Um, sure. I think, I think one thing that is to be recommended about Christopher Nolan in terms of his work with actors is, is specifically his work with Bale because, you know, like he's known as this deep dive kind of get into character person and yet, what it always has felt like to me is that when he's working with, like, how do I put this? Maybe directors who are as serious as he is, they kind of make, like, movies that he's great in but are real drags. You know what I mean? Mm, like, I think yeah. of The Machinist, which is, like, an almost a, oppressive is the word I'd use to, for The Machinist <laughs> in terms of just, like, that movie's outlook on the world and people. Um and he's amazing at it but it just really is like he's almost it's almost he's at his best when he has a director that's taking that seriousness and then deploying it in like genre fare and something that like is taking itself maybe not quite as seriously and i think Hmm. nolan and him pair together in this way that kind of like punches up both of them like it makes the character like a batman character feel like i should take it more seriously and at the same time it lets out some of like the hot air by reminding us that like this <laughs> character performance is still Batman, right? It's still mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne. It's still um, meant to be fun. And I, I think this is like a a great blend of those two where this is just like such an enjoyable genre flick at its core, like when it's at its best. And he is doing just so much like you're talking about just like generational level acting work in it. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I think that's he's my favorite part coming back to it this time around. I definitely found myself glued to him every time he was on the screen.
0: I like the idea too, Mike, of like Nolan movies often walking the line of the suspension of disbelief. And like Bale as a performer gives a lot, gives a lot to help us like, you know, buy into yeah. the conceit of the movie, right? Cause he's so sold out to it. Even if the premise is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. As often happens with these. Uh, Taylor, any thoughts on Christian Bale or?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree with all of that. I think it's a really fantastic like both a overtly fantastic performance and that he has some like pretty you know like overtly dramatic moments but i also think it's an amazingly subtle performance at the same time Mm. um Hmm. the thought that i had on that was that i think what's amazingly subtle about it is that he when you're when you're paying when you're watching closely um
3: Ooh.
2: he, uh, that's a line
0: from the movie. Oh okay.
2: yeah. He, um, <laughs> you, you kind of notice that like he, I think that each of the, the two Bordens have like distinct arcs in relationship to each other. And the fact yeah. that he's able to like actually communicate that while hiding the secret throughout the entire film that they are separate people is kind of incredible. Like specifically what I think happens, or at least kind of my personal theory is that like the, the Borden who is, uh, Scarlett Johansson's lover um. is kind of the hot-headed one who like drives most of the plot points. Like he is the one who kind of like consistently gets them in hot water, like keeps pushing them to, you know, like compete with Angier. But then he's ultimately the one who dies. But then I think it's interesting that the quieter Borden, sort of the seemingly the more like, you know, like thinking, like slow-to-act one, is the one who actually kills Angier in the final scene. Yeah. So yeah. there's kind of like a cool arc of like, he sort of is unifying the two of them together, which is just like, so
0: cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, I think yeah. that was the, we might even have to get into that a little bit deeper because I actually had an entire section of what works about the two Bordens and, but I kept debating on how much to talk about it. Cause at a certain point I became the meme of Charlie Day with all of the <laughs> strings going across the chalkboard being like, you can see here, he's holding this in this way. Sure, But I think you're right, Taylor. I think, you know, there's this kind of, Second level of the narrative, which is basically the the more mature brother. I I just started calling him that like mature Borden um, Having to survive like the the horrible consequences of his brother's choices over and over again Yep, I think it's pretty clear like some of these are sort of conjecture But it seems clear that the the hot-headed brother tied the knot, right? Yes. That that got the um, Angier's wife killed um, you know, you see him fail so so dramatically at maintaining the relationship with the mature Borden's wife and shouting things about you know about just uh, how horrible, how much he doesn't love her and all these horrible things. Um, the hot-headed Borden, I think, is the one who probably went to the Tesla show, even though, yeah. um, you know, you, you, you see a lot of things. I think obviously the hothead one is the one who goes to, Angier's show at the end, who even though they say like, we shouldn't do this, we should just drop it. Um, he just can't keep himself away. So there's like, the, that's a really surprisingly, I think, interesting narrative. An interesting emotional arc is the idea of the two brothers with the same ambition theoretically, but one of them is just kind of an asshole and can't yeah. keep it in. Yeah. And it's it's actually very tragic when, when viewed that way, which is so surprising, right? Um, that's kind of a whole a huge part of the story uh on that note mike who would who would you like to to shout out
1: well I'm just like always impressed with these movies that have you know, a child actor who is good and daniel radcliffe is now i'm just kidding um i really oh my god. yeah you just can't you were buying it i love you, it you uh, know though
0: yeah the, the gears were turning i was like who the who's in this child video? the kids you talking They're about kids? the daughter yeah my god i don't i didn't think she had even any lines <laughs> let's try to figure it out no i think you have to
1: go to hugh jackman right and yeah i mean hugh jackman is hmm he's maybe the perfect like opposite of mm. of uh our boy because i think he's like so naturally like over the top and but i'm equally impressed by him in this movie because the moments where he is reserved or pulled back he actually he does a pretty stunning job as well um and he's also someone who doesn't necessarily have an arc but they certainly have to come to a confrontation with themselves Hmm. um which obviously i mean we've already spoiled it they're gonna have to end up murdering themselves over and over again And uh, to complete their masterwork. And I think he does a really good job in this movie of both playing the early and consistent parts of this character, which is the the arrogance, the ego, the obsessiveness. Right. Um, This person who is going to go on a quest of like having to crack a code that's going to literally lead him to break the laws of physics um, and destroy himself many times over in the process. But he also just, I think, captures... So he has that, that ego, obsessiveness, but then he also captures, I think, the parts of a person like him that are attractive, are magnetic, are yeah. um, charismatic. And I think that's the part of Hugh Jackman that I, I just love to see. I think I was surprised at well, how, how well he did the darker parts of this character in a positive way. But I'm also just, like, love watching him just kind of, like, sell me shit, basically, as, like, yeah. a, a glorified con man, or ringleader, or whatever you want to say. And yeah it's a pleasure to watch
0: the man work um i kind of wish he would do more genre affair that's my biggest takeaway for this movie yeah i wrote that down too i was like yeah i feel like he didn't do as many things like this he got kind of caught up in um you know the the x-men universe he got caught up in musicals and stuff but i feel like this kind of drama just you know mid-level drama which i guess this whole movie disappeared but still, he didn't do a lot of stuff well, like it's, this in it's, hindsight.
1: It's super weird because between this Logan and Prisoners, he plays yeah. some despicable people. Mm. Um, some monstrous people. not like bad people, but people who do monstrous things, let's say that. Yeah. And I I there's a part of me that just wonders if that just if he stopped doing that as a career calculation. But he's mm. very, very good at it. And it's a real bummer yeah. that he didn't stick with like a willingness to play dark Um, yeah because yeah he seems to get into musicals and being the hero and blah 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 blah
0: I think the only thing I would add I agree I totally agree with all those comments I would also add it occurred to me on the rewatch like he really also has to carry the movie and Mm -hmm. until the last act like it's almost not quite only him but we're really really tied close to him throughout all of it and there's just a lot of frankly boring stuff that you sort of have to get through but he kind of sells you on it. He keeps things charming. He keeps things moving. It, it's a good role. I think. I think it works really well for him. Taylor, anything on on the huge the huge Jackman?
2: <laughs> yeah, I would I would agree with all of that. Definitely, I think that um, I definitely agree that I I am sort of sad that he no longer does these types of films. I mean, a side note: Do these types of films get made anymore? Hmm. Yeah, but, I, guess uh, I think
0: that's. A, <laughs> I mean, they're TV now. Yeah, they're right? TV. Uh,
2: um, but I think that he. Uh, Yeah, like there's something really appealing about a, like the things that ultimately made him really good at like musicals and being like a sort of, you know, white teeth smiling, you know, like hero is the same thing that makes him an effective like antagonist ultimately in this film, Mm. which is that like you. Great point. You kind of, like, you know, you buy, like you are saying, Mike, like the charismatic, like, oh, yeah, he's just this, like, he's this well-meaning, you know, fresh-faced guy who's just, like, getting into the industry, but he's, like, very charming and appealing, and then once he introduces this, like, darkness, once his wife dies, it makes him, like, all the more menacing when you're, like, holy shit, like, this guy can, like, you know, like, I mean, the way that he kind of does on Scarlett Johansson, you know, where it's just, like you know, he's, he's like, he's charming until he's, you know, a complete piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Until he's like, like, I'm going to
1: pimp you out for my revenge,
2: you know? Yeah. And you're like, oh, 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 yeah oh no. Yeah. And it, and it is interesting too, how like alongside, like, you know, Christian Bale is also very much like a, you know, quote unquote leading man, I guess, at least in the way that his career has gone, but put next to Hugh Jackman, he seems like practically scuzzy. You know, so it's kind of like, it's an interesting, like, it's an interesting contrast. Like you absolutely buy that Borden is kind of like the, the like un underdog and Hugh Jackman is the, uh, the, like the, the golden boy essentially. Yeah, Um, sure. The only other small note that I have is I, for some reason in this in this rewatch, which I didn't even, I barely even remembered this from watching it when I was younger, but, like, I really love his turn also playing his double as Root. Yeah. Um, I think he's just, it, I mean, there's not, like, any, like, artistic notes to it for me. It's just, like, he's having so much fun just, like, chewing the scenery, playing this, like, ridiculous alcoholic, like... You know like like dark version of himself that's just i don't know I, I i feel like i can i am watching him have a blast like yeah like just kind of like doing that very brief turn ultimately and that's also not something that i can think i even even when he's doing like like you know musicals or things like i don't really see that side of him very much and i i enjoyed watching it
0: Totally agree. I wanted to mention when you were talking about the dark side character thing, too, or him him have him, his charisma aiding when he does the turn to the dark side. Yes. Kind of a proto John Hammond that way, too, right? Oh, I've yeah, a, totally. Just that, that way of you have all this charisma, but once you weaponize it and turn it into something evil, it just, like, from the audience perspective, it, like, blows your hair back a little bit. You're like, whoa, that's really kind of, you know, really intense. And it just ends up selling you so much more on that darker side of things.
2: Because I mean, my, my personal, you know, feeling is that that is how most, I mean, this isn't like an, like a a crazy out of left field opinion, you know, that is how most evil in the world kind of goes down. Right. It's like, yeah, yeah. like some, I mean, some real big, nice charismatic tall man (laughs) comes in and, you know, steals the show. And then like, you know, just like drops a bomb, you know, and it's sometimes literally, and that's you know i don't know it, it's chilling because it feels like true to life i think yeah
0: yeah absolutely yeah. they're, they're being swayed by by that i think is yeah i totally agree with that um i want to take a second to talk about we we're gonna have i mean we've we've been we've been saying it the whole stupid podcast we're gonna have a lot of negative things about <laughs> the female characters in this movie for god, very good reason god but damn i want i <laughs> want to say ScarJo and rebecca hall um Do a great job, like, as performers, as actors, right? (laughs) Agreed. Kind of an early ScarJo. Am I crazy on this? Like, right? At least for me, I feel like this was the first, like, big thing I saw her in. But I was also a middle schooler. So, yeah, as I checked, she was in a lot of stuff, obviously, before this. (laughs) Uh, Still, though, I think great turn for her. Great turn for Rebecca Hall. Anything on them? It's hard because the characters are so, yeah. It's hard to talk about, (laughs) though, because the characters are so weird. but. You yeah, do a we'll, good job we'll come
1: back to this later My, he has a, an amazing capacity to get talent to be in movies to play
0: terrible. we team. can call it out a little bit here no yes. word what works which is just to say that this is it's, it's so funny how this is like the most emblematic version of Nolan's problem yeah of like all of the female characters existing storytelling wise to support the plot development yeah. of the male characters yeah. and like in this movie it's also egregious because you have multiple male characters with important mm-hmm. roles and yet they're still only being supported by, you know, Yeah, It's totally. it, it's yeah. it's one of the worst possible examples. Uh but again, they do a great job. So, you yeah.
2: know. Yeah, I agree. I think that like I would say the one only other note I have is that um Rebecca Hall, like she I think this this is sort of a note that I had about this is more of a straight thought I suppose. But like she uh the things that happened to her are horrifying mm-hmm. <laughs> in this yeah. film in a way that it I is. did not you know didn't really parse to me when i was a middle schooler you know like it's really 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 terrible and i just think that she like actually does an extremely effective job like playing that up in a way that feels also very real yeah you know? like, yeah and instead of like there, there's a way to like you know over dramatize that i mean even though like you know when you're when you're playing a character who is having like truly truly terrible things happening to you like i don't know it kind of made me think that she would actually be like extremely effective in like a horror film i don't know well, so I've so i was about to jump
1: literally about to jump in on onto that my friend um she is very very good at doing i think what you're describing is she plays a character being gaslit really well sure um and capturing the actual like seeping out of what that would be like to be like i know that i'm being lied to misled and yet i get like people are acting like this is normal and it's not She puts that to work in a horror film called Resurrection that is deeply disturbing. And I would Mm -hmm. highly recommend to anyone looking for a super jacked up film. But she is like you want to talk about a performance in a horror film that deserves like an Oscar. That is one of those movies where, you know, in very different reasons, you watch her unravel under the weight of just gaslighting, quite frankly. And she captures a character losing her mind in a way that is truly extraordinary so Uh-oh. just want to shout out another movie uh she's one of my favorite actresses she's also in a great horror movie called the night house that is one of my favorite movies of the last decade so um
0: i hate christopher nolan that's it it is interesting though mike are you saying in those roles she she also has the sort of like i'm being gaslit yeah like, she like that she, same...
1: she has the same quality she, she is so, really good
0: at it she's like, a in, phenomenal in
1: this movie. actress she is one yeah. of the best actresses of this generation like that is my true oh, belief okay cool and she is so 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 good at capturing someone who just like is aware on some level that there is something amiss something wrong something uh deeply unsettling kind of i mean like i'm with taylor rewatching this movie you're like what happens to this character is horrifying i mean um and i also think
0: it's horrifying yeah <laughs> and she's yeah. being
1: she's being misled lied to all this stuff and but you're kind of watch her grappling with that and the inability to cope with that kind of like ooze out of her. And she captures that unraveling so well in these other movies too. That's all I'm trying Mm. to say.
0: Yeah. Um, 100%. Um, There's really only two actors left that we, that I think we need to discuss. And I I want to start, actually. I
1: will not bury another Batman.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wait a second. I'm sorry. Three actors, believe it or not, because I was leaving out Mike, the most important actor. Do you have anything? Do you have anything on your boy, Mike? I will not bury another Batman. Okay. We got it. (laughs) That's all I got. He's like the
1: best dad. He's such a dad, like, in everything. He's just like the wise father figure. Is that dad energy? I don't know about that. I think it's like... He uh, is for a great deal in the movie and then he's not, that's obviously the twist of the movie um i yeah i i i love him as just like a wise mentor figure and that's what he seems to play in all of nolan's films uh he yeah. has a darker bent in this movie for sure but the general vibe is still the same so
0: shout out michael kane by the way it's michael kane we're talking about michael kane <laughs> they, they they knew with the barry batman it couldn't have been anyone else taylor anything on michael kane um, I
2: will actually, I do have some thoughts on him. I think the performance is good. I actually have some things that don't work that I will mm-hmm. save that sure. regarding we'll save him that. specifically that I think yeah. are we'll save that. stood out to me.
0: Uh, the two actors I was actually referring to didn't include Michael Caine. So I guess I, I suck. I wanted to first mention Andy Serkis, who I want to say is like maybe somewhat underrated in a certain way. Oh,
1: hugely. I think, yeah.
0: I, I think that like. His acting well and, and even insofar as like there's a certain over the topness that he brings to everything that I think for a lot of like very high minded film people automatically excludes him from a certain tier. excuse me from a certain tier of actor, hmm. which I think is unfair because I think there's a certain like in this movie, especially, I see in him like this self-conscious theatricality of like the Hollywood Golden Age, right? like the yeah. accent and the big gestures and the huh. It, it, it's almost like a performance that would even read, like, you know, a few steps away, like, like in a theater environment almost, right? That mm-hmm. It's just yeah. a little bit too big. But I think if in the right w- role, it works really, really well. And obviously, in, in the motion capture, I think it works really well because you have to sort of perform beyond the limits of the technology. But also in these kinds of smaller roles, he ends up just bringing like a real personality to this like random role that, that yep. has, you know, yeah. maybe five minutes of screen time. Um, anything on Andy circus? Uh, uh, do you, are you about to say positive things about David Bowie? No, I was about <laughs> to say, I was about to lead into David Bowie by saying I have him in both my, what works and what yeah. doesn't work. So
1: let me categories. just, <laughs> let me just touch on this here. Cause I don't really have much to say about him. He's not terrible, but I think it's a credit to Andy circus that he makes that stretch of the movie a lot more bearable for me. Yeah. Um, I find him a lot more interesting to watch than David Bowie in this movie, which is weird. I Um, I don't disagree. Yeah. Yeah. So I I do think it's a testament that he just like kind of brings a level of uh, movement and excitement to
0: a a sequence that is otherwise kind of slow. I'm a little bit mixed. I think ultimately on the David Bowie performance, I think if we're going to talk about the positive side for, for right now, I think there's a lot of unintentional comedy in the accent. So we got yes, that yes, going for yes, us. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there is at times like cause cause I mean the guy had like 115% max charisma, right? And yeah. I think that does come across in certain moments and you're like, oh, okay, I'm I'm happy to be here. This is fine. But I think ultimately it's also weird and that actually aids the movie's rewatchability. I think is the biggest positive thing I can say is that there's some part of my brain that's like wasn't you know? Wait a second. David Bowie wasn't a was in the Prestige with I Christian Bale and with you know. Yeah, it always catches me off guard. Yeah, 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 And it and there's something kind of fun about that with such a out of nowhere performance. Um, Taylor, do you have was this was this our first? I feel like this was my first interaction with David Bowie at all.
2: Actually, prob- you, probably yeah, for me too. I mean, I was aware of him. You know, like at at that point, I had already gone through like many white american teenage boys like a classic rock phase so i was you know tangentially familiar with him but i think he seemed a little too transgressive for my taste at the time certainly which is not true now i love david bowie um he's one of my favorite artists ever but uh yeah i mean i think i would say too that like i i'm probably more on the negative side with this performance unfortunately i don't remember feeling that way when i first watched it but he just like david bowie to me as an actor is either he is very binary he is either like kind of wooden or he is very very extra yeah. and in Great. this role he is pretty wooden <laughs> and also the accent is so distracting uh it's <laughs> like i i don't know it, he just kind of came across to me like a guy reading a script you know sure. to some degree and like kind of Well, he
1: came, he came across as a guy focusing on his accent
2: yes it's yeah that's really
1: true. it but anyway go on
2: <laughs> yeah that's that's basically it it's just it, it seems like he's i mean again because as we've talked about like there really are some incredibly solid performances in this film and i think that he he suffers in, in like you know and i hate to say it about david bowie you know but like it, it kind of feels like dang this is the like musician doing a turn as an actor thing which is which is not true of all of his roles he's actually like has a pretty solid resume i think but
0: you're a big um, labyrinth guy from way back taylor i do like the
2: labyrinth yes yeah i actually
0: haven't seen all the way through but i've been very creeped out by the youtube videos i've seen and definitely that's
2: that's him in sort of extra mode where you know i think as a performer in general he is he is that's kind of his element when he tries to play straight it's just a little less compelling to me
0: but I totally, I I totally agree. I think, uh, I think that's a great summary of a lot of what he's bringing to the table here. Uh, getting outside the boundaries of the actors kind of talking more about why this movie works. Yeah.
2: Um, one thing that I think this is kind of a subtle thing that works, but I I like it a lot. And, and it was helpful to, you know, like have already seen this film several times Mm -hmm. to notice it. Um, it's, it's a nonlinear story, right? Um, Mm -hmm. and that is something that Christopher Nolan likes to do quite a bit. Um, I think that this one though is more subtle, which is perhaps a theme of this film overall for me is like, he eventually, you know, as we know, like becomes a, a director of, you know, great big gestures. And I, I like that this film in some ways is smaller. It's not a smallest film, but it is smaller. Um, and, and I think that that, that comes down to this nonlinear storytelling where like there is a way to do nonlinear storytelling that, uh, Involves like very very obvious visual cues like hey look this character has a different haircut so like we know that it's a different time but I mm-hmm. like that this film is actually sharply written enough that we figure out the timeline shifts purely from the things people are saying um, but like an easy one is like you know the the great Danton as a as a a term for Angiers and mm. Jir is like we you know the way that the great danton is referred to tells us where we are because like you know we know the later timeline is happening because he's the great danton he's like this you yeah. know famous decorated uh, magician and earlier on when we're still kind of in his like origin story if you will it's like the great danton is like is a nobody and mm. yeah. i like i like those little turns that like they don't have to you know again they don't have to like shave his head or something to be like hey look it's the future you know like there's these little tells like that, which are subtle enough that you pick up on them without having to look out for them, I think. But like, yeah. also, if you're paying attention, you're like, oh, that's like that's quite sharp. Um,
1: well, and and I think that's a to, to jump onto that. I also think that ties to the previous conversation because I think one of the cool parts about that is these actors do such a good job of like capturing how haggard they're becoming. Mm-hmm. So there is also a posture that you can notice to know oh yeah, this is like we're reaching the end because this character is like broken at this point or completely insane in the other case, right? Or just losing their grip on reality. So I think that's really astute. And I honestly, I think he gets so much worse at that in a lot of ways as his career goes on. No one does. And I think a lot of that might be because he's trying to draw attention to his cleverness of of out-of-order storytelling. So this is one that, you're right, settles the right word. um, And he's not like, Proud of himself about it, or yep. overtly <laughs> proud of himself about it? Yeah, I don't know, John. What, what were you guys saying?
0: Oh yeah, I was gonna agree. I, I think there's a sense of restraint that is maybe missing in in his, some of his later work, especially like he said vis-a-vis his own cleverness and storytelling. I think it actually has, in a good way, a sort of sophomore syndrome thing. Where mm-hmm. when you when you really look at the structure of the movie, kind of to your point, Taylor, it felt very much like an upgraded Memento. Yeah, you know, hey. like where where Memento was basically a puzzle box movie. This is based this is using a lot of the same storytelling techniques especially like you said the sort of out of order on uh, you know um uh, story the the unchronological I'm I'm forgetting the word for that but you know but everything is is upgraded. The world is richer, it's more exotic, the storytelling is more fascinating. It's it's more nuanced and sophisticated in general. So it does feel like he kind of got almost a second bite at the apple of tell a story out of order. And of course he's going to do that a lot more later on, but it it just feels like, like I said, that he has sort of the restraint going into it as well. Yeah. Well, I think real quick in that vein, I also think
1: it's a nice balance between memento, small scale, small scope, small stakes, just a guy Mm -hmm. trying to catch his murder of his wife. Next few movies after this one, Way too big of scapes. <laughs> yeah, Way yep. too the big. The world is ending. Way yeah. too big. This is a nice medium. Bigger than a memento, not the world's on the line, right? Yep. And I think that's a that's kind of his sweet spot. It reminds me of Dunkirk a little bit, right? Uh, world's kind of on the line, but not really in this one battle. Um, and there's something about that medium ground that lets him kind of avoid some of his excesses.
2: Yep. Yeah, I agree. I think, like, yeah, I, I feel like I there's almost a meta narrative that I I feel like I notice a lot with a lot of artists that I enjoy where like, particularly when working in like commercial mediums like film, right. Where, you know, they, the sweet spot for a lot of artists is this exact point where like they have done some early experiments, they've gotten some traction, but they haven't been given just like an infinite budget and like a coterie of yes men around them. Right. So like, they're like, I think part of the restraint, John, to your point is that like, you know, I, I assume some of that is like artificially being imposed on him, you know, like he's yeah, not like, you 100%. know, he's not Christopher Nolan headline director just yet. You know, he's like, he's getting there. So like, he has to work within the constraints of probably what he has. And he also hasn't been congratulated enough probably to be like, you know, like, you know, liking the smell of his own shit, you know? So like, it's, it's, it's a great medium point, I think, which yeah. is part of why I like this film a lot.
0: I will say and I, I don't know why I keep taking such a defensive take. I, I do want to mention I, I as far as the directors that eventually get the blank checks, I do like what he's done with it for the most part. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like yep. he, he never sold out to the level of like, sure, I'll make Iron Man five and, and you know, like he he still is interested in his own independent movie ideas, which I, I appreciate. Yeah. But I totally agree that yeah, it, it is you can sense that later on. <laughs> there's not that many people vetoing ideas on Oppenheimer right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, on whatever. Um, well,
1: and, and that's like, dude, I mean, love him or hate him. He still hasn't done IP, you know, he yeah. still hasn't done. He's done original storytelling with big budget and he's made it successful. He's kept that alive in a lot of ways. So, yeah i don't know it's funny i'm so mean to him and then you're like but interstellar is the movie i wish they would make today right like a huge budget successful blockbuster sci-fi movie with no ip um so yeah i don't know don't do about that but totally uh, agree
0: wish he liked women if only (laughs) this is kind of this is a little bit of a reach but i just want to mention real quick too just in terms of why this movie works talking about the story and the themes of it I, I i think this comes up in his movies a lot I first noticed it in inception where I think it's it's so blatant as to be any you know extremely obvious he really really likes to connect things to the theme of i think filmmaking and creativity in general um but I think this movie actually has one of the best sort of thematic resonance as far as that particular idea goes I think there's a lot of lines that to me were just almost one-to-one he's clearly talking about himself as a filmmaker yeah um (laughs) yeah Michael Caine says they're magicians your honor showmen men who live by dressing up plain and sometimes brutal truths to amaze to shock I think that kind of thing right he's clearly I, I just saw that. I was like okay so Nolan is clearly telling that to himself and that's great And on the one hand, there's something about that that can be a little bit you want to roll your eyes. But again, I think the theme is actually pretty well explored throughout the movie, though, because you get the nature of you get to the level of, well, there's an element that they're delusional. Right. You get to the element of, well, there's an element to which, you know, they will sacrifice. They will do horrific things in order to get their art across again, maybe a little bit pretentious, but there's a truth to that, actually, in terms of art and creativity. And I actually kind of like it when he explores that. That's actually one to me one of the most fun parts about movies like this and inception. And again, a lot of his movies, he does this is picking out like, Oh, this is sort of an analog for like a producer. Like you think about Michael Caine's role in the movie and it's like, Oh, special effects. Like the way that a director has to rely on this. You think about when they're talking about how um, Borden doesn't have the same charisma and like how important it is to sell the idea. The idea itself isn't enough. I think there's a lot of, like I said, thematic resonance like that, that was pretty fun. And and I like it when he weaves in kind of in, in terms of like writing what, you know, mm. I think he's mm-hmm. good at connecting things to those themes. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. I would say, uh, throughout the movie. Yeah. I mean, this is again, this goes right back to the previous comment.
1: This is my favorite sweet spot of him yeah. in the middle, because when he does that same shit, but with Robert Oppenheimer, and he's just like, I too am Oppenheimer. I am just dead. I like cannot, I mean, I love Oppenheimer. I love the movie, but I could not help but be like, this mother effer thinks he's as important as Oppenheimer. I
0: was like, what the sir, hell? You're making you, movies, not the bomb, bro. You, <laughs> like, dude. you imagine someone being like, sir, you make movies. Exactly. I said you that make, out loud
1: in the movie. But, uh, But no, yeah, it's what it's, it feels reflective in a movie like this and not preposterous and not arrogant. It feels like, cause they, cause you're right. These are flawed characters. They're deeply unsettled characters. I do sometimes wonder if he understands how unsettled they are, but anyway, I I um, hope so. I could be wrong. (laughs) I deeply hope so, but it's not as, um, this is like before it becomes truly great man history, which a lot of his later movies do. Um, so I, I, I like that theme explored in a film like this. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: I actually too, um, you know, I even would say because because we've we've kind of talked a little bit about how Angiers, um Hugh, Hugh Jackman maybe doesn't have quite the arc in the story, quite the emotional arc to mm. follow. like there is an arc, but there's a lot that it leaves on the table. But like, again, thinking about this theme of the director and I'm really curious, I'm actually mostly just curious where you guys fall on the speech. I think his last little speech in the movie, says so much of what Nolan thinks about himself and also is a kind of interesting character beat. You never
3: understood why we did lose. The audience knows the truth. The world is simple. Miserable. Solid all the way through. But if you could fool them, even for a second, then you could make them wonder. And then you, then you got to see something very special. You really don't know. It was.
0: I think again, like, you know, that kind of language to me, first of all, so clearly talking about entertainment, filmmaking, creativity, all of that. But there's an element of that to me that speaks so dramatically to that theme and that thematic resonance. I think there's something (laughs) kind of powerful in that, Um, even if it is a little bit, it's a little bit hokey. But yeah, moments like that, I think read through that lens to me on the rewatch really landed Mm -hmm. and, and, and really kind of. Yeah, we're just really, really extraordinary.
2: Yeah, I have kind of two completely polar thoughts on that moment. I had some notes yeah. on it. Um, I do. I for one, I completely agree with you. I think it is like a a great piece of dialogue, bordering on hokey, but not quite there, so that it mm-hmm. like has some real like excitement. And I really do think it's obviously, you know, it is. There's a a meta layer to it about filmmaking, and and it it feels like it could be coming straight out of Christopher Nolan's mouth, and I think that I, I like those types of moments, but I do think that actually the fact that it feels like it could be coming out of Christopher Nolan's mouth is sort of the problem with it for me, mm, which is that sure. I had a note where I'm like, I don't believe that that has much to do with Angier's character. And <laughs> that I, I think that he is a, he's obviously a showman. We know that, right? Like he clearly, he sure. does that. He's charismatic. But when you, when you think about the arc of his character throughout the film, like we have seen, the only motivation that we have really seen him have for the entire film is like revenge and competition. Like there's actually like, we don't really get many character beats of him, like enjoying performance, (laughs) you know, or like, or, or, or like showing an audience something. It seems like he is very ego driven and very driven by like deeply personal things. So I, I think that like, there's, there's a note for me there of like, I love the the resonance of it with the themes of the film. Like with that, I think it works perfectly, but coming mm-hmm. out of Angier's mouth specifically, I'm kind of like, ugh, like I, I don't know how once you would get that speech in there because I don't know whose mouth you would put it in, but like.
0: You know, it's funny though. I don't know if I agree because I'm thinking, I guess I only have one counter example, but to me, like that was the importance of the entire first uh, transporting man trick that Angier's does. So the first trick he does with the double, because the, the, the note, because they're technically successful at a certain point, but he keeps saying he's unhappy because he's missing that last moment. He's missing the prestige. Right. And so to me, that was the connection was just that he at that moment at the end was saying was basically reiterating that to him, nothing else mattered except seeing people respond to the performance. Yeah, um, I see so I see what you that mean. That was the through line I drew, but what I what I can see is that if you without that, it's not like baked into the character. It's not something that he, that, that comes up organically throughout the, the Right. It's kind of what we're saying, that there's no arc that you don't feel that as what the character is going through. It's actually sort of just like an isolated incident almost is what it feels yeah, like. So, yeah. So yeah. This is like we're
1: again veering into a comment from what didn't work. Um, because this is, this one's a little
0: messy. This is a messy episode. No, but we'll get it back
1: and forth. I'm with you guys. I'm with you, John. It's one of my favorite lines of the, of the movie, but I am struck at like, is he, is he a self-aware enough person to have said that line one, um, to know himself that well. I think that was my immediate like revulsion from it, which is not actually, that's a little strong, but what made me pull back the first time is being like, I don't really buy that at this point, this guy is thinking this deeply. And what I really wish that line had been is one of remorse of like, that's who he was as a performer in the opening five minutes of this movie. And he has lost that love of creativity and performance and all these drives of ego. So I wish that was more of like a longing for who he used to, used to be kind Mm -hmm. of a comment as he's facing his end kind of a thing, rather than supposed to be something that he's like always felt. And he's like lecturing someone else on um, because I don't buy that at all. I don't buy that as his motivation for the majority of the film, kind of like Taylor is talking about. I buy it maybe as his motivation in the beginning. I buy it maybe in that scene you're talking about, but as a whole, it feels out of character because there wasn't an arc and it's not a looking back on where that arc began and ended and all this stuff. Um, it does feel like just something Christopher Nolan wanted me to hear. Um, yeah. So yeah, again, it's both Again, I find du- directly talking.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I, I could totally agree with that. Um, this might be, we, we've we gone back and forth sort of uh, on, on like the writing of the movie, I think to a certain degree. I want to just mention maybe five or six and, and like we can even go around. Do you guys have lines that you like in this movie? Oh, I yeah. have a few. I have a few that work for me. We can go around if you want. We could, we could trade back and forth here. Sure. Um, okay. So the first one I wrote down, I did make the note as insulting as the wife character is <laughs> the slight shift from at the beginning of the movie, she says, uh, when she, when they're talking about being able to tell that Borden some days doesn't, isn't saying I love you sincerely, oh, right? Oh yeah. There's a slight shift. At the beginning of the movie, she says it makes the days you mean it more special. By the end of the movie, she's saying it makes the days you don't mean it so much worse. Hmm. Put next to each other, it's pretty obvious. But separated by the whole movie, I thought that was actually kind of a cool touch. Like just calling back to that earlier line. Little lines like that. I almost wonder if they're even book originated. Just because I think those are pretty effective. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I
2: mean, I guess perhaps one of the most obvious lines to talk about maybe because I think it was in one of the trailers or maybe or something. I don't know. It just stuck in my head is the when uh, Michael Kane's character, and I guess I suppose his last line in the film, I think, uh, where he tells um, Angier oh, yeah. that... Previously, he had said that, like, he tells the story of a sailor who um, who says says that, uh, like, drowning felt like going home. um, And, like, Andrew kind of holds on to that. And then, you know,
3: later in the film, take a minute to consider your achievement. I once told you about a sailor who described drowning to me. As he said, it was like going home. I was lying. He said, it was agony. Which is like, yes. It's like Yo, so still
0: so I still get goosebumps at that. Yeah. That's still, that's so heavy. So that's heavy. cold, man. Was that yeah. a Willy in the trailer, Taylor? Isn't I, that a spoiler? Like, I guess that is kind <laughs> of a giant awful. spoiler.
2: Maybe it's just like it feels like written in like a, a trailer-like fashion in yeah. my brain.
0: <laughs> it's, a mic, yeah. it's like a mic drop moment. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. A, yeah. But it, it's actually, that story... Being coming, being called back as well is pretty incredible. In a way, I almost forget about it because it's so incredible. Because that's what stuck out to me the first time. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Mike, yeah. what do you got? Uh, yeah. I mean, this is just this is money. It's the bank.
1: I think it's it's the selling point of the movie. It's the opening setup.
3: Every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary a uh, deck of cards, a bird or, or a man. He shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it. To see that it is indeed real. Yeah, unordered. Normal. But of course, it probably isn't the second act is called the turn the magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary now you're looking for the secret but you won't find it because of course you're not really looking you don't really want to know want to be fooled
1: yeah i mean it's just like i mean one it's michael Caine, their rating a plus um and then obviously it's it's like peak Nolan before Nolan again did this 800 more times in every movie he's made sense where he's just telling you what's going to happen and he basically sets up the whole movie. Yes. Um and it's delightful. First time I saw it just absolutely drew me in and then the rest of the movie lost me. But the opening. <laughs>
0: Jeff's guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh I can't cut it in because it's it's the line the first time you laugh cuz it's uh David Bowie reading it. But when he says The truly extraordinary is not permitted in science and industry. Perhaps you'll have more luck in your field where people are happy to be mystified. That's a good line. It is. Questions on the performance, but it's a great line. I think that lands.
2: Um, I have one that is pretty silly, but I actually, in terms of thinking about what I've carried with me for most of my life from this film, it it really is one line, uh, which is um, at the, in the funeral scene uh, where Borden arrives after uh, the the funeral for Andrew's wife specifically. And uh, Andrew asks him, Uh, which knot he tied, and then Borden says he doesn't know, and then as he's walking away, Hugh Jackman is shouting, how can he not know? Yeah, And I I feel like I regularly say this to my partner, just kind of, (laughs) you know, with no context, and it was useful for us to watch this film, because I could be like, oh, now I can show you the film where they say that line that I say to you all the time that you don't, that just doesn't make any sense. How can you
0: not know? Yeah. It's very... (laughs) very specific line reading on yes, that
2: one. It is, yeah. It's a great it's a great line read that I feel like I've turned into something ridiculous by, by just repeating it to myself too many times, but... <laughs> I like that element. Mike, do you have any more? Uh, Yeah, this is another one of those more poignant ones,
1: very small, one-liner, but Alfred's kind of narrating near the end. He said, we both had half of a full life, which was somehow enough for us, but not for them. Obviously, yeah. talking about their family, and as someone who's just like, you know, addict, alcoholic, you're just like, Dang, that like it's a there's a whole level of that that I think uh, has a power to it when it comes to like people who are obsessed and what they they bleed into the people around them who
2: love them.
0: Yeah. You know, we haven't explicitly called it out because I think it is the most surface level theme. But just broadly speaking, the the obsession angle is done pretty well in this movie. I oh, think. Absolutely. The way That's, that they. Yeah. The way that they struggle with that and it comes out in them and, and all of that. Uh, this is the last one I wrote down. Um, and again, it's a very short one. Michael Caine, again, bringing the heat when he's talking to the judge and he says, most disappointing of all, sir, it has no trick. It's real, mm. which again, I think gets to that idea of, you know, we, wanting to be fooled. of the idea of like entertainment happens when you see something incredible, but don't think that it's that incredible. Yeah. If it's incredible enough, then you're like, oh, now I'm scared. Right. Um, I think that that idea is also just really, really cool to me. Uh, that's it for me what you guys have any more I think
2: that's it for me too
0: uh I, I always remember and am struck by
1: the little kid who asks, but where's his brother uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dead bird <laughs> like it gets
0: it always gets me do you do you sneak that one into daily speech like Taylor does with with the other line Mike? <laughs> I you, should do you find ways I should yeah. well it's but funny because it, its brother
1: as as usual this is like a father of of children thing but like that is something like I would miss and my daughter would pick up immediately <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to just be like, yeah, there's a, there's two birds, you know, um,
0: this is a dead bird. Yeah. Uh, and obviously a cool, cool little. Metaphor yeah, for the movie. sure. Uh, I just have two more things and they're small. So I'll just knock them out real quick. Um, the soundtrack's pretty good. I actually, so it's funny is I wrote down a note in the first 20 minutes about how much I didn't like the soundtrack because <laughs> there's a couple spots in the beginning of the movie, especially where it's a little bit, for lack of a better word, like very, uh, cookie cutter, like Mm. big movie, uh, pretty obvious cues, I guess, just, just not very interesting music that I was like, Oh, that's kind of, that kind of is a little bit of a bummer by the end of the movie though, it has very much transitioned into being a lot more, uh, atmospheric, I guess. Like, like there's a lot more touches of one note, kind of hanging above these little tense moments and stuff like that. I, I forgot to mention the composer is David Julian, who I actually don't really know. He did Memento, um, and then has done a lot of movies, but kind of some smaller work it looks like. But I, yeah, I think ultimately I think it's a pretty good job. It doesn't like you know overpower the movie. It's not like this huge thing, but it does a really it does really good work.
3: Um, wow! Yeah. No
0: no walls of we. Wow. This was pretty, <laughs> this was pre. <laughs> uh, I, wow, well, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Uh, this was pre Hans Zimmer um, uh, Christopher Nolan connection. So so we're mercifully spared all of that. I, I do like that he wants me to understand the dialogue of this
1: film. That's nice. Yeah, <laughs> that was a he, nice change. This was of also for
0: before, him. before that whole thing, too.
2: Yeah. yeah. I have a comment yeah, on absolutely. the score, too, actually, that was in my Stray Thoughts, but it seems relevant to talk about it now. Yeah, I think that um, I agree that it's it's interesting in two ways. One is in the context of his films, as you were just alluding to, Mike, that his scores become increasingly ridiculously huge. <laughs> yes. And I I do like I was struck by how minimal this one is. Like it's almost yeah. it's barely there. I mean, like I feel like you were even kind of underselling it, John. I mean, I feel like if you're not listening for it, you just won't even notice that there's a score. I mean, obviously I there agree. is one, yeah. but like it's so not prominent. Um, and the second thought that I had on it was is kind of a cultural context one, which and maybe this is just kind of my lack of awareness about when this thing that I'm going to mention became a kind of a thing, but like I feel like there's a, a thread now in a lot of films where like when you compare a movie made in twenty twenty three to one in like the nineteen seventies or something, say, like it, the scores are, are extremely minimal and all about like timbre and mood. And there's not mm-hmm. much in the way of like big melodic gestures or something. Themes I mean, themes or
0: anything. Themes,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, particularly when you're thinking about like blockbuster films from like you know yeah, many sure. decades ago where it's like they have you know like the Jaws theme or like Indiana Jones or things that feel kind of in the same ballpark, you know, like, and now, you know, I mean, there's, there's a certain type of person who greatly laments this too, is like, there's no writing in film. And I'm like, I don't care, it's fine. Like, it's just yeah. a different thing. But in my memory, this is a thing that had only become quite, you know, embedded in like blockbuster films within like the last say like 10 years or something. But it's interesting that this film is, you know, like almost 20 years old and it is absolutely doing the like minimal mood score thing. And I just thought like, I guess I had a note of like, was this ahead of its time? Or maybe I just don't remember when that became a thing that started happening. Um,
0: I think it's a really good note. I think it is, um, because I, I, I've, I've dabbled in the cinema score community online, um, where there is, in fact, a huge backlash to basically all of modern film scoring, because sure. you, you're totally correct in, in, in that juncture. Also, incidentally, why they truly do hate Hans Zimmer. Um, <laughs> I tend to side with you, Taylor, where I just think, well, it's different. Um, I do have a slight preference for the more classical thematic scoring, mm. but it's a different thing, and it, it accomplishes different things, right? Um, I would say it's you're, you're, it's a very astute poll because I think you're right. It's slightly ahead of the curve. If you look at this kind of mid two thousands, late two thousands, um, that's when this starts happening. I think you see it more so in real prestige um, movies because because one year after this is uh, obviously two thousand seven, where things get crazy. We're gonna get um, there will be blood. We're gonna get yeah. Um, um, my mind's going, like no, no country, which of course doesn't have any music. I think that's where it starts becoming like big movies don't, you know, are, are, are either going, you kind of have two lanes. Now we're going to do crazy stuff with music, not thematically crazy, but crazy, right. like, you know, sounds and walls and whatever, or, or whatever Johnny Greenwood is doing. And there will be blood and you're going to go this <laughs> angle or what you start seeing in a lot of prestige movies and even prestige TV is. We're not gonna do anything. We're not gonna do any music. Screw music. We're better than that. You know, we're gonna make this intense and serious and whatever. So I think you're right. Like this is basically one year before or in the in the three or four years in the middle of that kind of turn. Um, which whether you lament it or not is is kind of says a lot. Yeah. yeah. But uh yeah, it's a great poll, I think. It, it sits in an interesting place for that. Um the last note I have about this movie actually. I guess I will say is kind of a, what works, what doesn't work. So before, maybe I'll use that as a transition. If anyone else though, I'll check in. Do you guys have anything else for why this movie works? Yeah, I got a
1: few things. Um, Go for it. you know, I think he just does a good job of tension building and, and building the mystery. Um, I think that's something that he's always been good building to a climax. This is just like one I'm Nolan specialties. Uh, this movie is no different as he builds that kind of final reveal I think, and I guess that goes into pace. Um, though the pace of movie is not perfect by any stretch, when he does build to his climax, it's chef's kiss almost always. Um, I think broadly speaking, it's nice to see Nolan do like a period piece. I think he does a really good job. I think the costuming is fantastic. I think the world feels lived in, I feels like uh, there's a time and a place. Um, so, Yeah, I don't know. I, I, he doesn't often do that until recently. It feels like he's starting to do that again with Oppenheimer yeah. and stuff. Um, you know, but obviously, I, I love his costume being in something like Inception, it's very stylized, but this definitely feels more of a time. Uh, yeah. Inception feels outside of time. So,
0: that's so that actually was my note. So, so, so I'm gonna come back to this a little bit in what doesn't work, but I, I did write that broadly. It has the turn of the century British Gothic sci-fi horror thing going on. Yeah. Um, we do have that period costuming. We have the the cities that look great. I actually think like the America stuff looks pretty cool as well, like the Colorado yeah, yeah. thing. Um so yeah, I think it's kinda of, it is cool seeing him. I guess Dunkirk, he does this. Like he you know, does. technically yep. it's a period. Yeah. He, yep. he does it occasionally. He's pretty good
1: at it. So he does not yeah, that's kinda of what I was saying. Yeah. yeah like, but, it's, nice, it's nice to remember that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't return to it all the time though.
1: Yeah. And then uh, the last one I have also straddles both, and that's the end of this movie, <laughs> which is both somehow the best part of the movie, and the part that I bump up against the most. So yeah, um, I guess we'll prop. I don't know. I'll let you uh, kind of bring us over to the next section. We can talk about it then.
0: But- sure. I, I talking still staying on what's positive again. Like you know, I guess you're gonna have some sub takes on like the twists and stuff. But I, I do think the whole last sequence, the twist, the the final shot of the bodies and the, in all the aquariums oh, classic. or whatever. like yeah, all yeah. that stuff lands to me pretty, pretty, so pretty well. So good. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I agree with that. I, I really feel like part of the reason why the structure of this film works for me is I'm for better or worse, like a real sucker for some symmetry in the structure yeah. of a story. And it's just so like, I mean, you were alluding to this a minute ago, Mike, about like, you know, the film tells you in the first five minutes how to watch it and what's going to happen. Yes. And then it does exactly that thing. And then, like, it ends. And it's just like, there's something so, like, I I think I wrote down in a few places on my notes just there's like a tidiness to it. Like, it's very, it's very neatly wrapped up. It's like vacuum sealed, kind of, you know? And, like, I think that perhaps that is also, to something we've alluded to, kind of a negative, and that I feel like sometimes it kind of sucks the humanity out of it and turns it into, like, like a nicely like intricate little device, you know,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah like, engineering yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah, it's
2: yeah, it's almost like it's engineered, which is like satisfying in a different way that something that is deeply human is satisfying. But to me, if I'm in the right mood, is still satisfying nonetheless. Oh, for sure, it's a magic trick, <laughs> you yeah, know, like it's 100%. All, that's what it is, and that's what some films are, and that's okay. And I think that and
1: and, and going into like I, I think it, it's equally fun as a mechanic like you're talking about as like this technical feat of storytelling and i mean i'll I'll just be honest it's phenomenal as a thematic resonance right like there's something so cool as a sci-fi turn to be like robert strove so hard to figure out a trick that's just two twins that he created cloning (laughs) like there's just like (laughs) something like the obsessiveness of that is like so interesting right and yeah. obviously it's taking place all while alfred's getting hanged so there's this whole self-destructiveness of obsession also but that's like as a sci-fi like uh twilight zone episode that's a phenomenal that's like such a cool twist yeah, yeah um, it's a great idea so yeah i, I do want to say positively that's why i would say it's the best part of the movie Equally, I mean, it just, it's the like, parts
0: I look up on YouTube when it's like, yeah. you know, I'm just on a random afternoon. Like, man, that, that landed. I want to I want to go back. to that. And, yeah. and here's a question. I guess this is a question.
1: Does Nolan have a single shot that has stuck with you more than all the people in the, the tanks? Because I don't think so. I mean, I think this is truly like as a single visual, yeah. that might be the one that I, 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 I don't think about it the most, but I can close my eyes and envision it the most.
0: You know what I mean? I think, yeah, this is definitely has to be like like a like a one c one or two c in the in the competition what's funny is the only other one that came to mind is also a closing shot so i'm also starting to wonder is he just really good at that because the other one that came to mind was the dark knight yeah um partially because of the narration and stuff but i think that's a really iconic closing Uh, shot again
1: if you're gonna if i will praise him for anything it's his climax building
0: i mean this dude knows how to
1: build to the end of a movie and then land it i mean it's awesome yeah yeah totally agree totally and it's a great a great example go on sorry
2: oh you're good you're good sorry um the only competing visual i could actually think of weirdly is from oppenheimer there's a the scene um where he is giving a speech about the victory of the dropping of the bomb and like the room mm. is kind of like disintegrating around him like and yeah. that that scene has actually i mean obviously i saw that much more recently but uh I I, I I definitely agree though that like other than that I'm like yeah what else like he has stunning visuals but very not a ton of like stunning single shots where I'm like oh exactly. man yeah, yeah.
0: stunning yeah. sequences right yes. but not
1: not a singular moment that I'm like I close my eyes and I think of this image yes know?
0: yes yeah anything else uh, Taylor Mike on why the movie works uh, you're a wizard Johnny okay. <laughs> Uh, We're going to take a quick break and then come back in just a second. Okay, for this next section we're going to talk about why this movie doesn't work, what maybe holds it back. Uh, we have some bigger fish to fry in a minute. I want to start, though, with a point, c- kind of continuing the last point that I made if for why this movie works. I said that it broadly has the turn-of-the-century British gothic sci-fi horror thing. I wish I'd lean into that way, way harder. Yeah. And what I found myself remembering, um, I don't know if you guys remember that when Inception came out, uh, it got a lot of criticism that... Mm, Maybe fair, maybe not, but it got a lot of criticism from like professional critics for the dream sequences not being more dreamlike mm. um for it being like in a sense, just feeling sort of like heat like all of Nolan's films. I actually think that criticism works way better for this movie where I think like there's a certain aesthetic homogeneity homogeneity to Nolan's movies. And like I think about this movie and I'm like, it's a little bit like kind of looks like all of his movies like i feel like we could have done some more fun stuff with the again the sort of gothic sci-fi horror thing going on i think there's a lot more aesthetics that could have been pumped into it um and, and so I, I in that sense it just disappoints me a little bit also kind of a tangent but kind of related uh ironically hate the radiohead credit music oh my oh, god Oh yeah it's the worst thing every single time that happens I'm just like, my brain is like, wow, that's like the worst thing that's ever happened to me in a movie. It's so bad. It's so out of place. It's so like 90s, even though this movie came out in 2006, like the idea of attaching like a popular song. It's not even a popular song, too. It's like a random Radiohead song. I don't know. Yeah. I just thought it's abysmal, and I don't know what it's doing there. I love Radiohead. That's the context that may be important. I One of my favorite
2: bands. Yeah, it's. I think yeah, it it's just a, takes you out. I right? want to say it's a it's a Tom York solo track off the Eraser. I think. Wow. I, and it's I, like so yeah. deep. Cut. I mean, but it's yeah, it's so like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think of that record as dated, but it felt dated in that context.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just a weird thing in the credits of a movie i'm yeah, just like yeah it goes, and again it takes me out of the aesthetic entirely i'm just like cool i you know whatever little bit i bought into the like you know gothic kind of thing is just gone it's totally out um so that is is obviously the worst thing about the movie nothing else to be said uh, <laughs> i think we can move on right yep that's it masterpiece taylor <laughs> taylor what do you have for why this movie doesn't work um
2: I think so i my number one thing you might not like uh because i i was thinking about this as you were talking about things that worked because it's i <laughs> i think this film actually suffers quite a bit on rewatch um oh. and i think that it's it's very closely tied to what i think makes it a strong film which is basically like essentially that uh it the clues for the eventual answer to the film are so embedded with the plot that it kind of feels really obvious.
1: Yes, <laughs> sure. when you're rewatching. this, is what, this is yes. what Mike was saying too, which yeah.
2: is like which is funny because like the film tells you this. Like, I, I wrote down quotes as it was going where, like, you know, like uh, when Borden first meets his wife Sarah, he says, The secret impresses no one, the trick that it's used for is everything, and then like Sarah replies to that by saying, Once you know, it's actually very obvious, and then like. I feel like that, like, it it is both, like, interesting to rewatch this film because you know what's going to happen, so you get to watch all the subtle tells that will, like, lead up to the prestige. But, like, I think that it also is, like, well, yeah, but it's kind of like a magic trick where once you know the secret, it's not as interesting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah, And, like, and then I, I think also on that, too, like, it, I both enjoyed spotting the things that, like are the, you know, actually are the truth to what's going on, but once you know, it kind of feels like a little bit oversaturated sometimes. Like, Hmm. like, I mean, one of them being like, for example, like, you know, Cutter keeps telling Angier like multiple times, like, you're gonna have to get your hands dirty eventually, and it's like... I mean okay yeah he's going to kill himself like you know it's just it almost makes it it makes it kind of feel like the characters are self-aware you know like of the plot yeah. in a way that is maybe related to my criticism of that ending line too from Angier that it's like it kind of feels like the filmmaker talking rather than there's this push pull between like the 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 beautiful intricate lattice work of the structure of this film and its plot and like the actual human beings and i think that like yeah that's all that to say it just suffers a bit on the rewatch because i know and then it's like well yeah it's like okay well now what (laughs) yeah i mean this is a fundamental thing i mean this is just what i think this is just a problem with nolan it's
1: they're not human these people he can't write people i don't think nolan's a person like i don't know maybe he's like a (laughs) like an alien but there's just so many times you're just like this isn't how people talk (laughs) and you're right yeah it's their their, They are a mouthpiece for clues and winks and nods, but they're not human like, and, and I think that's why it's frustrating because we have talked about so many scenes that feel human or that we connect to thematically, but the parts that are related to where this movie wants to go feel so deeply robotic when Mm -hmm. it's coming out of people's mouths, like, or like you're saying forced, um, clearly breadcrumby. like they're they're just not actual dialogue pieces yes um
0: yeah Uh, sorry to interrupt but one of my absolute favorite examples is uh and and like i you know i think the practical side of that is that sometimes dialogue is just truly very clunky yeah and clunky for exactly what you're saying mike and, and and also taylor's point that they're not like characters as representing humans they're characters as representing ideas and storytelling turns and that's kind of it they just exist as characters but not as anything more fully fleshed out i want to just call out and i don't know why but this really drags down the first like 10 minutes of the movie every time i watch it but the conversation between angier and his wife at the beginning actually all the conversations at the beginning of the movie Mm. there's like three or four are so like exposition oh oh, yes. Yes. You know, oh my god yes oh. well you didn't do that when you came down from your when you emigrated or you changed your name so your family didn't know who you were and it's like oh my god I get it yeah Did, have you ever heard of baking things organically into, into dialogue like he just doesn't do that He's just I like, learned not when I
1: was a sailor with my brother yeah, yeah it's annoying
0: he just has characters <laughs> just like open their you know just fix their mouth open and die and like exposition just spews out it's just it's really bizarre it, it like i said it drags down the beginning of his movie i would actually note that is a nolan problem in a lot of his movies the first act is basically like set up to a really obvious degree yep. even his really good movies like the dark knight when i yeah, started thinking yeah, about it I was like the whole first part of the movie is just set up It's yeah. really on the nose set up and
1: you and you yep. miss it because he starts with like a banging opening scene with the yeah. bank heist that you just forget that you're right. I mean, and this maybe that's it. The because I love the opening monologue, but maybe it's just yeah. too short, so it didn't cover over like
0: how. Given that the absurd. Dark Knight was his next movie, maybe he truly like learned that lesson. Yeah, maybe. Like, yeah, you know, start with something flashy so that they don't fall asleep in the first 15 minutes when I'm going to give them all of this information. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know.
2: I have one more sort of orthogonal point to that as well, yeah. which is. uh i think that i mean unfortunately because i love watching him i love him he's a he's a classic hollywood actor but i think that uh michael kane's character is like the worst version of yeah. this by far yeah, sure. and that like the note that i made is that like the thing that that i couldn't i i kept noticing is that he's always right he's right yeah. about everything everything yeah. that he says is prophecy like he's just like he he has like something he's like well you don't want to do that or watch out for this and then of course exactly that thing happens and it's like Uh, it's like it's and also beyond that then it it begs the question of like what is this character's motivation like why is he doing anything that he does like he's just crazy he like goes along with all of angier's bullshit until he doesn't and then it's like but why did he go along with it ever (laughs) you know like it's just it's a strange he exists to be like as you kind of mentioned earlier mike like he's always the wise old man and like sometimes that take that 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 really works even if he's a thin character but i think he really distracted me in this one because it's just it's like a script crutch for like for christopher nolan warning characters and wagging fingers at them and being like well you don't want to do that you know like classical aristotelian you know arrogance thing
1: (laughs) well and it's so deeply obvious that like crutch is the right word because like dude think about him in the dark knight like exactly you were talking about the sailor drowning callback that's the let the whole city burn or they burn the whole jet forest down thing right
2: yeah it's the exact
1: yeah. same thing of like we need michael kane to monologue at him about yep. the central <laughs> conflict moral conflict of this movie so he can then call back to it later in a dramatic moment right and you're yep. just like oh i get it you just this is like your parrot for like exposition and it, he's good at it don't be wrong michael kane's pretty great at exposition um i i'm 100 i i didn't want you guys to think that just because i like listening to michael k talk i thought that character was good i think he's like (laughs) the definition of the complaint i have about the lack of humanity in this movie that character doesn't make any sense it's just like like and again it's also like (laughs) god this gonna sound mean it comes across of nolan being an alien again because they're like well what would make him change his mind well clearly threatening a child it's like, oh, yeah. cool. You found the most, like, bullshit universal things that humans don't want to do. Way to go, Nolan. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Give me a
0: speaking break. Of the, <laughs> speaking of the kid, I had this in my stray thoughts, but I think it, it can fit here, too, because it's kind of a plot hole that sort of connects with what you guys are saying. Because not only is Michael Caine's character a, cl- a crutch just in terms of, like, thematically getting ideas across – He's literally a crutch in the story. Yeah. Because it didn't occur to me in the most recent time I watched it. So he just kidnaps a child from Codlow's house. Yeah. Okay, Yep. In the last scene in the last act of the movie. And then also brings the child back to Alfred which both things i i see that as very much alike we got to the end of the story and realized oh how do we resolve this someone's gotta that do it saying, yeah. yeah that kid's <laughs> over there this we're, we're well no one's gonna really notice so we'll just have michael kane do it and like people <laughs> like him and they won't really put it together of like wait that's bad uh so yeah that's crazy and and but again i think it connects because it's like he is just sort of like let's band-aid over the plot and uh you know, they'll make things work. He'll, he'll kind of sell a lot of things that I can't figure out how to sell otherwise. Yep. Um, yeah. Tough times with that. We've talked about a lot of why this movie doesn't work. I'm just going to go ahead and hit the big one. We've been mentioning it since the beginning. Oh. The female characters are horrific in this movie. Oh like actually God. horrific. It's just oh, awful. Jesus. The, the broad point to make, if you don't know what we're talking about, like Nolan just generally struggles with the se- the central problem of having female characters, who solely exists to further the plot for the stoic intellectual male protagonists. Yeah. So, and like that one sentence, I could just rip out and paste onto literally like more than half of his filmography at this point, maybe yeah. all of his filmography. Yeah. Um, And it's just like a real blind spot. It's just really bizarre actually how what half of the human population just has no meaningful representation in I guess any of his movies. Are we going to count... Mm-hmm. Interstellar yeah, I think Hathaway maybe no, kind of. no, yeah no I was, I no I wasn't I wasn't Hathaway I was thinking of his daughter no um,
1: absolutely but... not
0: no <laughs> Mike I miss my dad
1: was... that's the whole character no <laughs>
0: yeah pretty much <laughs>
1: no. it's
0: tough um, this movie I also wanted to note is a great triple header because we have woman dies to give man meaning woman commits God suicide to it. give man pathos woman betrays man to give him motivation like it's just the, it's like the trifecta of just, yep. like, everything that a oh, woman could do without, age, I guess, betraying as agency. But, you know, it's just, like, they only exist for that reason. And then beyond that, I actually may throw this to Taylor because you've mentioned it a couple times. Beyond that, the treatment of the characters is yeah. also, like, bizarre. Do oh, you want just to just take that, Taylor? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Jesus.
2: yeah, it's just, like, I mean, when you think about, I guess, uh Borden's wife, Sarah, like, she is the mechanics of this are horrifying the more you think about it right where it's like she's married to a person who is actually two people so like
0: but doesn't tell her obviously
2: but doesn't tell her so like you know the entire marriage i mean like the way the film tries to sort of like i guess i don't know like not detract from the horrificness of it but sort of like like excuse i don't excuse it excuse it, it's it. sort of yeah. her being like you're just different today but it's like it's so much more than that he's literally a different person with a different body <laughs> you know like like of course she commits suicide i mean I, I don't know it's just yeah that is there's that and i mean the, the one thought that i do have on on the the treatment of women in this film is like i guess the the other way that it seems like maybe it tries to justify them being incredibly thin characters because like there's a different version of this film that is like a little more aware where it's like, there is a heavier finger pointed at the fact that like, well, these men cause like just destruction around them, right? Yeah, like sure. that's, yeah. they're arrogant, they're terrible. And like- they're, it, Basically like,
0: we're depicting this, but we're not condoning it yeah, is, is, is the argument.
2: Exactly. You know? And like, and I mean, and I do think the film technically does that. Like at no yeah. point are you supposed to feel like, oh, like Angier is like a good dude, you know, as he like sort of descends into like obsession and destruction, right? But at the same time, like it, it, it it's not, a, it doesn't like exonerate them, but it also doesn't maybe like emphasize- how horrendous the things they're doing are enough if that makes sense yeah and i'm not like
1: i'm not convinced it doesn't admire them
2: well that's the thing is i I do say on the other hand too like a a big thought that i had is like angier definitely his ending is quite like look how his like arrogance destroyed him and everything around him but borden i mean half of him dies technically but like he gets the kid he's kind of doing okay and nobody's like yo dude you like gaslit your wife <laughs> until she yeah, murdered that's a like, herself yeah. <laughs> like he's he kind of comes off looking like the okay one and it's like or at least that's the film's logic is like look like one of these men completely destroyed himself and one of them maybe played the better hand and figured it out but it's like no he didn't <laughs> yeah and that that's maybe my ultimate beef with its perspective and that why i don't think it gets away with the like these men are arrogant. Look how terrible they are. It's like, it still likes them ultimately in some ways. And that's the problem.
0: And it still Uh, wants you to, to root for them in a certain sense. I would, I would say, yeah. Uh, Mike, what what do you have? Well,
2: I mean,
1: I just think we've already identified that, that Nolan puts himself into these characters like directly. So I, I don't think he's being as critical as we want to read into it. Like, I don't think he condemns Borden at all. I don't think it's, I don't know. I don't
0: think Borden is meant to... I I agree with you. I don't think... The yeah. Borden at the end. I think you could maybe, given what Terry and I were talking about earlier, you could maybe separate it and say like one Borden he condemns and right. the one that sure. survives he doesn't. But that's absurd. But it's so yeah, exactly. Absurd, Based yeah. on what we're saying, they're both pretty culpable yeah. for yeah. Some and extremely extreme stuff. Yeah, especially if that's supposed to be a
1: positive reading of that last scene as he walks away his now motherless daughter because he drove her to suicide. It's crazy. Like yeah. it's yeah. not a reunion. It's a it's a child walking off with a monster, and it does not cast it that way. Um. So yeah, I don't know, man. I I yeah, dude, yeah. Also want to also wanna, is not
0: his strong in this movie. But. Also want to shout out Michael Caine's line. I forgot to write who, down who this is about. I'm pretty sure he's talking about um the wife who drowns. But no matter what, this is tough. When he says Michael Caine says to Andrea, she sacrificed Robert. That's oh the god. price of a good trick. Oh my god. And I god. wrote down in my notes. I was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure it's talking about the woman who died, which doesn't make sense, but it doesn't make sense in any context. No woman in this movie sacrifices for a trick. They all are horrifically manipulated or with no agency or killed or, you know, it's just bad. It's no one, no matter what, it's a weird line. It is. It's like, what? It's like the end
1: of, there's a scene at the end of WandaVision that's very similar, which I'm not going to spoil WandaVision,
0: but it's insane. It's truly
1: a line in the show where you go, what? (laughs) You're just like, what did you just say? Um, and again, it, b- it belies that he doesn't understand who the villains of this movie are. However, so, like, broader than that, I do want to just, like, zoom out and just and just acknowledge. And we talked about this with Interstellar, I think, and and probably any other time we've mentioned him. But it is, like, absurd at this point, like, the dead wife stuff, right? Like, yeah. this is, yeah. like, ridiculous. Like, every single one of his movies, it kind of reminds me of, like, a Disney plot. where Like, we don't know That's how to give thinking, kids, yeah. like, like a reason to go on the hero's journey, so we just kill their parents, right? It, it, that that feels like what he is doing. Um, and when women aren't dying, they're just wowed by the greatness of these white men, which is a whole other yeah. thing. Um, but like, it, it's it's alarming. One, the, the white thing, I just want to note it because I bring it up in every pod. That's more of a bit, except for it's not a bit anymore. It's just alarming. Um, two, between this and Oppenheimer, I, I do think we're at a point where you're just like, I don't think I've seen a director waste generational female talent as much as he yeah. does. Um, yep. Yep. and and it's it's wild because Emily Blunt's gonna probably win an Oscar for that performance, but that's a bad character. It's a terrible character. And I feel mm-hmm. the same way about Hall and Johansson in this. They are both spectacular in this movie. And they are utterly wasted. And at, at some point that's become a track for him. Um and I guess props to him that they keep signing on to these terrible script projects but it, it's truly the most disappointing part of his film his filmography as a whole at this point
2: yeah, totally yep. agree. I did have one other thought too on the the line John you're talking about about the sacrifice mm-hmm. thing because it is interesting because like so like if we assume that he is talking about That's his his wife, right like it that that reveals something very central about the film's worldview there because like it's this the the death of these characters is presented as like. A a more like a stumbling block or a roadblock to the psyche of these characters, you know, like sort of Mm -hmm. like wow, like these horrible things happen, and and like you know the film does make them to some degree. I mean, I I would say Andrew more so reckon with some of the horribleness of it, but like Mm -hmm. it's ultimately presented not as like oh, it's horrible that that woman died. Period. It's like it is a it is a a note in this person's journey that they have to recover from, you know, right? Like, which rather than them being their own person who just died point blank. And it's, it's bad, (laughs) you know, it's horrible
0: that she died. It's horrible that he has to deal with her death. Exactly. That he has to, you know, doesn't remember her right or doesn't love her right or whatever. It's like, wait, the horrible part of her dying shouldn't start with like something with him. That's not the first part of that sentence. The horrible part of
2: her dying is dying.
0: (laughs) Yeah absolutely which it it does speak taylor it's interesting because when i wrote that down in my notes i did put a question mark of like if this is self-aware enough like maybe i could buy it in sort of like a wolf of wall street way i'm like do i accept that the movie is putting that line in for me to react the way i am and think like that character is speaking ridiculously but ultimately i decided i I just don't think it is i think it actually is presenting that somewhat sincerely and i'm like oh no there's not enough that's evidence not
2: there's not enough evidence to support that even though i think that yeah. like again like looking at the, the script or the plot from Ten Thousand feet you could be like this is a film about the abject destructiveness of male arrogance and competition which is mm. you know technically true <laughs> but like <laughs> yeah i wouldn't say that that's really what the emotional experience of this film is you know right um, it
0: connects you too closely to those those central male yes. figures they're the protagonists yeah Um. Yeah, it's bad. Anything else? (laughs) Why this doesn't work? That was actually most of my. I have some stray thoughts that are like you know, touching on on maybe something holding the movie back. But those are the big points I had. Yeah. And we already talked about like Bowie and stuff like that. But uh, but I think you both had things. Taylor, do you do you have more?
2: Yeah, I have a couple of sort of small ones. Um, one is that uh, I and I think this was really mostly true of the prison sequence where Borden is in prison. Um but i did know that like there's some like handheld camera cinematography that actually feels like I, I it took me out of it i was like oh this feels very of its time and kind of dated and i don't think it actually suits the material at all like yeah. because that yeah. was a oh. very like you know that was a lot of films were shot like that especially action films at that time and i'm like ah i this is not a handheld camera movie you know yeah. like
0: and i i would even go further and say there's a, there's a couple stylistic choices that that like lean the gesture towards action movie filmmaking, because I, I I think that comes up a couple times in the movie where I think to myself, like, does he know this is a quiet, like period drama, basically? Mm-hmm. <laughs> does did anyone tell him? Um. So yeah, I, I agree.
2: Um. Yeah, yeah. I have, I guess my one other one, which is like, I mean, it, it, it is interesting because for such a film, a film with such a tightly knit plot that is so, and also you know the the most of the film is the plot like we're saying there's not like a ton of strong characters plot holes stand out to me more yeah. than they would in other films and one yep. of the 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 big 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 ones for me because like two central parts of the film hinge on this is like the breaking of the glass which is like Andrew's entire plan for the like the the last act of the film hinges on Borden not being able to break the glass like which oh yeah because he you know Borden runs under the stage picks up the axe right. is like oh my god Angier is dying i need to let him out what if he breaks the glass like what like then what like i it's
0: it's actually crazy how many problems are introduced in the plot if he does like successfully rescue right. him at the and, end right and and yeah. Angier and is
2: like presented in this section of the film as this like mastermind you know like pulling these strings as Lord Caldwell but it's like but that's such a simple thing
1: <laughs>
0: that <Yeah>. could go <laughs> yeah. wrong yeah.
2: And then, and in a similar sense, that would have
0: ruined everything. Exactly,
2: it would have. And and the breaking of the glass in the first act, when uh, Andrew's wife dies, is also kind of like I get why that needs to happen for dramatic reasons, but like that is a very strange plan for the that entire magic operation. Like, why would you make the backup be? Why not you just know, have it all be
0: a fake lock?
1: No, like, no you know, There's a there's an old man with an axe who has to come out yeah. and
0: smash <laughs> it. <laughs> so I had this as a straight thought, but I'm gonna go ahead and pull it up. Are we sure Michael Caine's character is a good Imagineer?
1: No, I think he's he, terrible. He, he, he <laughs> actually <laughs> fails throughout the movie.
0: If you think about this the stupid like bird contraption that breaks the woman's hand, that's a pretty disturbing scene, by the way. Yes. I don't I yeah. I struggle to watch that. But like over and over again, he kind of just face face plants you know i'm yeah, just not good i'm yeah. throwing it out there
2: maybe i buy that as the reason is that like <laughs> michael kane is just incredibly incompetent at maybe his <laughs> job he just sucks yeah he's just a <laughs> bad imagine here
0: tough times for our boy again the, I, the the point I do of not think that's the point is, of the movie i think you're right this is under plot hole by incompetent yeah.
1: under <laughs> yes. there, there you go
0: maybe nolan was like angry at a assistant <laughs> that, or something yeah. that's the character is is modeled after him no you're right i think it's a stuff like that sticks out and to to the point about the rewatchability of the movie that gets worse on the rewatches yes. you're like wait that doesn't make sense yep. you know so yeah totally agree uh anything else taylor why this movie doesn't work um this one's a little more
2: vague and less specific but i and and some of this might be related to in my opinion david bowie's pretty pretty bad performance but like I think that the whole like science as real magic theme is pretty undercooked. Like Like, it's there and it's, it's interesting because I guess it, it mostly is there to serve the, like, as I think you put it pretty eloquently earlier, John, about like, you know, people are, um, when something they want to believe that it's fake, when it's actually real, they're either scared or bored, but like, I don't know, like, I get that the magic or the science is magic is serving that point, but it also like, there's something else there too. Like it in so far, maybe it's related to the, the feeling of this should have gone deeper into like kind of uh you know 19th century gothic horror yeah, science that's what fiction. i was about to say like because yeah. that could have really been a cool like lovecraftian i don't know like something about like the terror of like what is actually out there in the world but as that's it stands a, it's just kind of like
0: eh. <laughs> i would say like that is such a key thematic element to again gothic horror sci-fi but this movie feels like it doesn't understand that at all yeah and just sort of gestures at the idea yeah of, like, science is magic and it's like isn't that a cool sci-fi thing and i'm like yeah but are you gonna use it and the movie's like no no nope. <laughs> cool and then it moves on and it, we're done it,
1: it's really interesting because he he does a similar failed scaffolding i think in interstellar right where it's science yeah, and he yeah, tries to scaffold yeah. science and love and and what's super interesting john i know you haven't seen oppenheimer is he just like gets that out of oppenheimer like the yeah, monster of the movie is science science is just science and he lets science be what it is which in the case of the atom bomb is monstrous is terrifying is horrifying is all these things but he doesn't try to wrap it in this weird scaffold to something else that I completely agree with, with Taylor the problem isn't even necessarily the connection it's that it's underbaked in both movies Yeah, um, he just yeah. doesn't invest the time to make that a meaningful statement of any kind so it feels silly but
0: yeah totally uh, agree and
1: love love transcends the
0: three we all know love, love the, transcends right. all yeah Sorry. actually it's still not the worst part still not as bad as people think it is in the yeah seller, but pretty yeah. bad yeah uh mike do you have anything on why this movie doesn't work oh i sure do john anything more
1: yeah let's talk let's talk about the um the fact that the end of this movie exemplifies all of nolan's bullshit uh, so <laughs> i already said that i think the final sequence of this movie is is the best recommendation from it it is one of the best parts of any nolan movie ever It also I just really do think captures like this weird tug and desire within him to make these like guess how this all works movies that are equally either obvious and simultaneously truly impossible to have predicted. Hmm. Um, Because I truly believe the first time I saw this movie that I was like, that's that's Christian Bale. Like, the other guy. I was like, that is clearly also Christian Bale. And there are, like, 800 key moments in this movie's plot that hinge entirely on people just not recognizing Christian Bale with a mustache. Like, a fake mustache. (laughs) Um, Which is a whole thing. I'm just like, that's just nonsense. Uh, I mean, there are, like, people who, this is the most important person in their life. Like, oh, a spouse. And they're just like, huh, hello, lawyer.
0: With mustache who is clearly not my uh, husband. (laughs) Big Clark big Clark Kent energy, exactly you know? yeah or just yeah. like wait a second what exactly yeah, I agree with that
1: so he builds that up as like a huge reveal and I don't feel like it it is one I feel like I, that was predictable in a lot of ways in fact he tells you like Taylor said on the rewatch you're just like oh it's obvious but then on the other side I do feel like there's a part of the whole cloning thing which is it's like try he's like wants you to like be guessing the whole movie and what's going on and then it's like just kidding I invented cloning and you're like What? Like that's not guessable. That's not possible. That is. So it's weird. There's a part of me that I think this take is deeply influenced by like the redditization of Nolan and the way that people like peek apart his movies and mystery box them and talk about them. And I just don't enjoy the way that they engage his movies. But I do think part of it is like a desire of his for this to be like one of these lead you along breadcrumb movies. And the ending of this one is just like somehow both obvious and impossible. And that deeply frustrates me on some level um, while also being the singular best choice that I think he's made to make a film just like a sci-fi movie as a twist, which I think is wonderful. So I don't know where to end this comment. I just think it's kind of funny. Um, I guess the ultimate what didn't work is goes back to fake mustaches are not disguises. But um, <laughs> I do think it belies something deeper with just like how he thinks about like a twist in a movie altogether.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, earlier I I mentioned how I think Memento exists as almost only a puzzle box movie. Yeah, and I think the more he moves past puzzle box, the better. Oh my god! So to your point, like I think this movie is still like there. I think he would say that over seventy percent of this movie's enjoyment is the puzzle boxness of it. I would disagree with that, but like that, you know, that hurts his case. Like it's a worse movie if it's meant if that's meant to be the most central part of it. Uh, to your point, Mike, I think it's it's not it's it's just it's not even that it's not successful at that. It's that it's not as successful as at that as it thinks it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wonderfully um, said.
2: Yeah. I, I also I I have kind of a funny note on what you're saying, Mike, about the disguise, which is I think that the the moment which you see twice at the beginning at the end of the film, where one of the Bordens, you know, goes under the stage, you know, tries to get Andrew out with the axe and whatever, and he's wearing a mustache disguise in the audience and then like goes up, you know, when someone tries to stop him and says like, I'm part of the bloody act, you fool. And I think it's supposed to be like a a sort of like a subtle, like look at his bad disguise here versus his great disguise later that you learn. And it's like, and I think what's funny about it is I agree with you. I'm like, both of these disguises are bad. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like
2: neither of them are convincing. One of them is like really not convincing, nor is it supposed to be. But the other one is like, I, I just—that's Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I wait, do love the Nolan. idea of Rebecca Hall just being like,
1: "Who is this dashing man?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, anything else? Why this movie doesn't work?
1: No, I think that's it.
0: Okay, with that, I think we can move on. Uh, this section is called Stray Thoughts. It's basically exactly what it says. Each of us has written down five different thoughts about the movie. It can be any kind of random thing, research, or just something that came up while watching it. Um, Mike, why don't you go? We'll just kind of go around. Mike, Taylor, and then me.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's my great pleasure to bring someone else into oh. <laughs> this bit. And, and I, I'm also excited, Taylor, because I think this might be the hardest one yet. Um, because you know, Lewin Davis, he's, he's lost out to Baron Harkonnen. He's lost
0: out to, you know, (laughs) that one, that one really sticks in the mind though. That one's hard to talk.
1: It does. It's tough. Uh, he's lost out to, uh, whatever the fat guy in Jurassic park, just a lot of people, a lot of people. Um, but this is truly hard for me. So, Taylor, let's start with you. Worst hang: Lewin Davis or any female character from a
2: Christopher Nolan movie? <laughs> oh man, that's that's not where I was expecting you to go with that. Um, uh, I mean, I think it's probably it's the thing of the thing about like the female characters in Christopher Nolan's films is by virtue of being kind of inert, I guess they also seem like they're pretty nice. Most of the time, like you know, oh, like man. they like. Oh no! Like a big I, husk of a human being. They're kind of chill. yeah. You know, I don't know, but they seem pretty chill. You know, like I, I feel like I could hang with Sarah or Scarlett Johansson's character if we're just like getting a drink and hanging out. Um, yeah, I. I, I do say that I have a meta comment on this bit, which is that my general take is that I think that Lewin Davis actually wouldn't be a terrible hang. I think he <gasps> I think he is an awful person, but I think that like imagine you're just like there are types of people in your life sometimes who are like not great, but if you're just like hanging out for an hour, you're like, that person's entertaining. You know? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's alright. I, right. yeah. I would I... Would I want would I want Lewin Davis to be my my bosom friend? Absolutely not. <laughs> But no. would I like, would I like talk to him for 15 minutes at a party? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, yeah. um, you say that now until he impregnates your girlfriend, he has to get an abortion. <laughs> so maybe. Yeah, that's why I'm keeping him at arm's length. He's not close to me. You He's can't far control
1: Lewin Davis and what he does with your girlfriend. What an arrogance. <laughs> what madness.
2: So anyway, but yeah, I, I would say that in this specific case, I will still take, you know, any of the, any of the uh, female characters
0: in this film over Lewin Davis for like a quick hang. Damn. Tough times, John. How about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, any female. Uh, I mean, what are you talking about? Lil Davis is a nightmare, despite what Taylor just. I don't know, like what this Tyler apologism is happening no, it's on weird. the podcast right now. <laughs> I'm i am actually reconsidering my
1: thoughts on Taylor entirely.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would never, I would never hang out with wall. Are you kidding me? The guy's a bummer. He's just, he's just mopey. He's just, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, Taylor. I have to disagree with you on that. And I gotta say, yeah, you know what? ScarJo in this movie isn't a real character, but. Yeah, uh, at least she's probably a interesting conversationalist. I don't know. She's she has something that Llewellyn doesn't have. She has charisma. We'll do that. Um, does that does that wrap? Does that do you have any further thoughts on that, Mike?
1: Uh, I mean, there is something interesting about. We should probably hang out with the victims, not the perpetrators of. <laughs> 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 so I think probably the the female characters win.
0: Wow. What a wild roller coaster that was, Taylor. What do you have for straight thoughts?
2: Um, I guess one thing. I mean, maybe this is sort of also in a what doesn't work type situation, but it it wasn't that atrocious. I guess so. I didn't bring it up there, which is Julia, uh, Andrew's wife, drowns very fast. I like my partner yeah. and I were talking about this. It was like I was like, how long can you hold your breath? and we were like I don't know like a minute at least you know or something and I was like she drowns in like 45 seconds from like fully alive to completely dead
0: (laughs) and add in the context that she's a professional magician who presumably is like who has done this multiple times yeah to 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 breathe for a long time one would think
2: uh, and I don't know I mean again uh, necessary for the drama but I was like I feel like if you're in the tank for that long of time like you're gonna be able to be resuscitated like you're not just gonna be stone cold dead nah Uh, Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's better just to be sad about it
0: (laughs) they just have to cry that's the emotion that's you know what that part feels authentically like 1800s though yeah nothing to do cpr doesn't exist so let's just you know you can just cry i guess um god wills it god wills it there's a lot of plot holes in this movie i just want to address i just want to address something i have family members not me obviously but i have family members who volunteer for everything and have never ever been picked for anything. How do these two guys <laughs> keep getting picked as volunteers <laughs> in each other's shows, where presumably they would be looking out for that kind of sabotage? No, it's but the it fake, the like fake mustache, John. In the movie. It's the fake mustache, baby. But it's like it's not just a fake mustache. It's a fake mustache to get past your mortal enemy. <laughs> Who's looking at you is like, yeah, that guy can come up and, and walk around here. That's fine. And that happens like multiple times over the course of this movie. Uh, That's just bizarre. I don't buy it at all. My theory is um,
2: I, I have a friend who I was talking to recently who has uh, recently attended a theater festival. So he went to mm-hmm. a lot of performances, including some like shorter, more experimental ones. And he got picked at it for like these audience volunteering things. Like, I don't know, like a dozen times in a couple of days. <laughs> and his working theory is that some people just have that face. You know, the, yeah. Man. Some people just got that face that they just always they look open or something, and they always get picked. So I guess the working logic of this film is that both Angier and Borden just
0: have have one of those faces. You know, they always get picked out of the crowd. I guess I guess that must be even yeah. when they when even when they labor it with fake mustaches <laughs> and, and top hats. Yeah,
2: it, it shines through no matter what. Uh,
0: Mike, what do you got?
2: Let's
1: see. Um, oh my gosh. So when Alfred is wooing Sarah and does the trick where he asks to come in and she says no, and then he's in her apartment after she goes inside, is straight up serial killer
0: shit. Yep. Red flags, dog. (laughs) That's not good. Why didn't she bail at that moment? Did we just address that? So she clearly believes in magic we have to we have to accept? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs)
1: Alarming. Yeah. Taylor? Um Also, wait, actually, oh my God, I just thought of this. So that implies that his brother had premeditatedly broken into the apartment and waited until their date was done. Oh my God.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was just sitting there creepily the whole time. He's like,
1: yeah, it's
2: like a a cool pickup line. You know, I break into her apartment. If the date
1: didn't work and she went back alone, (laughs) what happens? You would have to
2: escape, I guess, unseen. But he wouldn't know, right? Until they opened the door. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> He's just yeah like, this makes... Hey, baby. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's you again. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Sorry. Um, my next thought was that uh, the electricity in both the, the mountaintop in Colorado and at Tesla's show looks quite dated, but I kind of love it. Yeah. um i think oh, yeah. may- maybe to the like the this should have leaned uh further into like pulpy sci-fi stuff i was like i kind of this is this is enjoyably kitschy like yeah, that, it's like you know whatever like they uh like they tried to, or that when they you know supposedly fail the cloning experiment on the the cat and the hats and stuff and it's like an enormous like like video game level like cloud of like lightning that comes down i'm like dang well if this was real science that's not how that would look at all (laughs) (laughs) but like but i kind of love that it's ridiculous um yeah i wanted more i wanted more ridiculousness less like po-faced you know serious angsty dudes
0: you know Uh, totally agree um you know tesla in the movie gives this whole david bowie as tesla gives the whole speech of like the world wasn't ready for me basically when he's the letter I just couldn't help but being, but picture it being read by some like Elon Musk-esque figure nowadays, yeah. you know, oh, would, yeah. would, would like give the same like, but that also made me think like maybe like Tesla, which not that this movie is necessarily representative of him, but I was like, maybe he was just like a, a fraud, you know, because that's that kind of speech. I don't associate with someone uh, who I, who I respect and admire anymore. It just felt very like 14 year old being like overly edgy a little bit. But oh, that's... the world's not ready for me, blah, blah, blah. It's like, ah, oh, you're fine, Tesla. Relax.
2: That's a really interesting point though when you think about when this film came out, because yeah. I mean this is like a whole hobby horse I have of the ways that we've our perception of like technology and people who work in technology has like changed dramatically over the last 10 to 15 years in America specifically. And like I do think though that like in the mid aughts when this film was released, this was still in the like era of like wow, Steve Jobs, a visionary, the iPod, yeah, you know, you're totally and right. it's like now we're like yeah, now we just we're stuck with Elon Musk, well, you know. Well, and I,
0: I would actually even further point out like because I, I thought you were going this direction, I think you're totally right, but also this was in the middle of a renaissance about Nikola Tesla himself. Yes, yes. This was like this was like prime moment for like geeky high school guys to be like, oh, did you like to push up their glasses and oh, Edison, did you know that the real inventor was actually, you know, to do that whole thing? Yeah. So I think you're right. I think that narrative was burgeoning at this point. Totally.
2: And that's also further, I I love that you brought that up because something very funny to me was like how Edison's basically only appearance in this film is that he has thugs yeah. Like yeah. he just sends his notable, to break notable shit.
1: gangster Thomas <laughs>
2: Yeah, and it's like, okay, I get that he was like maybe kind of an ass, like we understand that historically, but the fact that his only like his only representation in this film is that he has some goons come to break some machinery is like, what? A <laughs> little
0: tough. A little tough. Mike.
1: Uh is this movie better if Job from Arrested Development replaces either lead character? <laughs> That's what I wrote
0: <laughs> That's what you wrote? Yep, that's it Uh, You know, Angier as, as, uh, That's what as, I'm saying I'm say, We're just asking questions here I'd watch it, 100%
2: I did have a note to myself prior to starting this recording Where I was like, wait, should I be referring to these as Tricks or illusions? <laughs> <laughs> tricks are things that horse do for money, Taylor
1: <laughs> God, I'm going to watch the rest of development
2: That's what I'm going to do today um, I actually have a straight thought that is, uh, ver- verbally related to that, which I, I was recalling that around the same time that this film was released, there was also a film that I feel like everyone has completely forgotten about called the illusionist. Oh, it, no, I, I've I never, never forgotten. Uh, I had yeah. a hot yeah. take at high school that that was better than this movie. Really, that's what that's what I was I was trying to remember anything about it, and and w- the reason I remembered that it existed was my partner brought it up while we were watching The Prestige, and I was like, oh yeah, I completely forgot. But the 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 stray thought that I kind of had with that was I was like, was this a, was there like a moment in in american like culture where like magic was briefly like cool or something
0: i was that i didn't helpful. do the i didn't do the research but i would love to know if like david blaine was popping off yeah. at this moment too yeah, was this all yeah. like happening like why did uh, these come
2: out at the same time why did people suddenly care about like you know 19th century magicians you know like
0: i <laughs> yeah i i actually always want i always thought that they were like that kind of competition movie situation where a studio saw the procedures was being made and like rushed the illusionist. Uh, sure. Yeah. I never he, confirmed that. The illusionist was good. I remember it being super slow. Like, it's definitely
1: slow. not better than this movie. I want to take back yeah. that take. Um, but it is. <laughs> Apologize it is, for your high school self. It is good. It is definitely good. Yeah, I remember good. it being good. Edward it's definitely Norton, m- Paul Giamatti. More romancey and more um, kind of like murder mystery for sure. Yeah. So it's a cool film. Uh, watch taylor? watch there be stuff in that that has aged horribly that i'm yes.
0: <laughs> taylor i think you're up right
2: uh yeah sure i think um i mean we've kind of touched on this throughout the throughout some of this but i the some of the accents are just like i mean i think we already talked about um uh, whose accent we, we talked about somebody's accent being pretty bad but we didn't mention Scarlett Johansson's accent which I think is like atrocious to the point of being quite funny that is um, actually true I, like, I actually had it in my like, notes and
0: forgot to mention Wabi it work. Wabi
2: and it's yeah. like oh god like I I mean maybe this is like something of a function of like this being pre-Christopher Nolan having a lot of money to throw at things and giving people acting coaches um I was also thinking that perhaps why I didn't notice this when I watched this in middle school is I didn't know any actual British people yeah, because yeah, I lived yeah. in Tallahassee, Florida. And, <laughs> but now that I've like gone a little bit further out into the world, I'm like, oh man, that is not a British accent at all. <laughs> no one sounds like this. It's, it, it it almost played more as comedy for me rather than something that I found terribly distracting. But if the film had been pulpier,
0: like we're suggesting that it should have been, it wouldn't have mattered at all.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: Uh this movie we can we don't have to dwell on this, but as a really quick thing, this movie is a perfect example of something called the teleporter problem. Mm. Uh which is basically this thing that comes up, it's like a it's an extraction of ideas from science fiction, which is just the simple sort of idea that like any Star Star Trek esque teleporter would probably work on the principle of transmitting the information about you, but then destroying the matter of your actual self. And then recreating it so there's this sort of um argument to be made about like is a transporter just a death machine that that creates a clone of you that's really the technology a transporter would actually be using Mm uh this movie is just a really nice way of like illustrating that if you're trying to explain to someone why it's a problem uh, yeah, if anyone ever comes up with a teleporter in the future, don't step in. You're going to be killing yourself. Or True. do it, because maybe your consciousness breaks every time you go to sleep. And is it really technically any different? Who knows? But I do, I do, I like about.
2: that it doesn't, the film doesn't try to get too far into the weeds of like. About, yeah, about like the uh, the nature of consciousness specifically. And like, because I feel like Christopher Nolan, you know, sometimes has a tendency to do, to over-explain things, as we've talked about, certainly. What? And it was, <laughs> I think it was, it was useful that he did not, he just kind of let Ngier kind of sit with the existential horror of that without really yeah. like going much further. I like that
0: it sits with the, it leaves you with I the existential I was literally question.
1: about to say that. It's one of the best lines is when he's talking, he says,
2: I don't know basically which of me
1: comes out every yes. time. Yes. Um, and you're like, yeah, that's Oof. all you need to say about it. Yep. Leave it at yeah. that. Yep. Leave it at
2: Sneakily, that.
0: Sneakily. One of the like most horrifying scenes in the movie is the first time he tries yep. it and we don't see the full scene until the end, but when the other him pops up and he shoots him, but that guy is just him begging him. Like, don't shoot and me. And it's the, like, oh, the that's thing tough. that I,
2: I was thinking that I, I made a note of actually, that's horrifying about that in particular is that when the way that he structures, the final trick is to kill the original and keep the clone yeah so, so it's, it's like he yeah. like w- however he did it the first time which implies that he like wanted to preserve himself like the original quote unquote he like decides to flip it <laughs> which is like well,
0: so he actually guarantees that his original ish self never can be the one who's who has yeah. survived after <laughs> yeah. everything yeah it's it's messed up well it's, weird.
1: it's funny oh yeah, no, this is like getting into the Reddit all because i always took from his comment that it was different each time like which of the oh. but no that doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense yeah, yeah like I don't how, know. But yeah, yeah ultimately, a,
0: yeah, he doesn't mechanically. Because wh- what does that comment running, mean then? He does. It means he that does he does
1: know that like, who's gonna go into the thing each time.
0: Well, I think it's more of just the general existential dread that, like, ultimately, there is a version of him that we don't hear from because they right. die. But there's a version of him that does experience every single time. I'm gonna pull the lever. I pull it. I'm drowning. I'm dead. Yeah. Okay. And that, like, the only version of him that he can speak to is the other one but the other the dying one exists every yeah. right, time right yeah it's fu- it's, it's actually really it's a messed really up. Yeah. it's a great it's a great side again it's right. why it's like, i really i think great. it's the best
1: part of almost any movie he's made is at a twist Yeah. just like oh god alarming
0: anyway that's tough yeah uh, i think it's you mike oh okay a uh,
1: simple question what is the blind homie doing beneath the stage during the cloning trip just hanging out love it uh, yeah he's well he's, one of, he's one of the stage hands, hands. Yeah, prop doesn't seem like he's very good at his job he's gonna
0: he's gonna move the thing do you, or think, that's, do you think that's
1: the guy with the axe this time around like that's no point okay i, I
2: agree the- that it is it like like you know the explanation for it is like oh he hires blind stage hands to move the tanks so that they can't see the dead guy in it but i do think that that like his presence at that particular moment is way too much of a, like, Hey, look, why is there a blind guy? Maybe you'll learn later in the film, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> a good point. Uh, Taylor. Um, I mean, I think the only other one that I had was just sort of like, it, it's definitely a positive. Cause we, we talked about the book at the very top of the podcast. And I think like, I liked that, uh, I the book is if I recall correctly is like similarly structured with like layers of the diaries so it's kind of like you're reading a diary about a guy reading a diary about a guy reading a diary and like technically that is carried over to the film structure right where like you know like Borden is reading Angier's diary who is reading Borden's mm, original yeah. diary I don't know I think this is like I mean you know John and I were both English majors in college and I think this is like a type of thing that I am for better or worse just like a real sucker for like even if it doesn't have like (laughs) actual like important thematic resonance which i'm not even entirely sure it does in this film other than like the layering of their lives kind of being like folded on top of each other which i can buy but like i think anytime a film is like we're gonna do some like structural metatextual trickery i'm like oh yeah like bring it on and i I do like that they carry that over from the book because that is a I know. Well, actually, I know we've talked about this film, John, but like, I think this is a a, something that famously the film adaptation of um, Cloud Atlas does not really do in the same way. But it is also a book that is very much about layers of texts like nested within each other. And I don't know. I just love that structure. And I totally agree. I
0: also thought about Cloud Atlas with this movie. Uh, Yeah, 100 percent. Uh, cool little detail. I didn't notice until I read the, read it on IMDb trivia when Tesla's machines are being exhibited at the Royal Albert hall and the man in the audience like protests, he's like, this is clearly unstable. And then he leaves that same man is one of Edison's associates later in Colorado, Ugh, the goons? thus proving, uh. thus proving that the magicians were all that like, you know, he was also sabotaging him there. Huh. As as well as he was in Colorado, I thought that was kind of a cool detail. Like that's something you would never pick up on, but it's it's it it is part of the story. So, uh, Mike. Well, I mean, us real Tesla heads knew, but
1: that's okay, John. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, do people really have confrontations over knots at funerals? You know, I just don't know.
0: It just feels like <laughs> you've done you've you've
1: done some. Funerals. Yeah, never, had, never had, had that happen. Never up. had had yeah. it, and I kind of wanna wanna be there for it.
0: it seems kind of. Have you ever stolen the drowning story in a funeral? Man? Mm. Or wouldn't it, it wouldn't it wouldn't play? Yeah,
1: no, I think that might be okay. crass.
0: <laughs> might that might not work, especially if they'd seen the movie. That would be that's, really tough. See, that's the
1: big problem. Is what if they caught me? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. that's the that's the real issue. You don't really care how they feel. Taylor, did you say? Do you have any more? Or are you? Uh, you're, I think you're I'm set? set. Yeah, I actually do have two more. I don't know how our my math went oh wrong. Um, but I'll just hit these real quick. Um, a lot of the tricks in this movie I found out were basically real world tricks. Um, also, there's a lot of allusions to stage names that are like also stage names being used in Britain in the 18th century. Huh. Things like the the professor was a very famous music uh, magician. I keep almost saying musician. Um, the disappearing bird cage, like all versions of it, including the one where the bird lives, were all based on real life tricks. The bullet catch was apparently a real oh, yeah, trick, yeah. and also often resulted in this issue or in someone dying. I actually did fine. So like, and then finally, I just had this little story of someone. um, Chung Ling Su was a stage character created by William Robinson, a white man who disguised himself as a Chinese man to cash in on audience's enthusiasm for the exotic. He lived full time as the character, never breaking character while in public. He died in March, 1918, when a bullet catch trick went wrong my God, I've been shot, were both his last words and the first English he had spoken on stage in 19 Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. I just thought that, that was an astounding. insane story yeah. when I read that. I was like, is that true? And I had to go look it up, it. all of that's accurate. So first of all, this movie, maybe we haven't been giving it enough credit that, like, I guess Magician World in, in the 1800s was truly insane. Um, but yeah. Crazy, crazy times for that guy. Yeah,
2: huh? man. Like, I'm both like extremely impressed by his commitment to his craft, and also the like, the yellow face part of it is like, oh man, <laughs> that's funny. Like, yeah, exactly. always a bummer. <laughs> and-
0: <laughs> always a bummer. <laughs> it's it's definitely was a good good take on. uh, I guess this would have been probably the book writer's part, making it two brothers instead of someone pretending to be a different race. Good call on uh, that guy good for that choice. Mike, did you have another stray thought? No,
1: John, you're the only one who went over.
0: Wow. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, I have one last one. And not only is it uh, one extra one, but I also haven't even finished the thought. But I just want you guys to know, I've started a research thing. Again, I'm Charlie Day with the with the whiteboard looking insane. I wrote down while watching this movie, does Michael Caine deliver the teary-eyed, I have to tell you the truth speech at the same moment in every Christopher Nolan film? <laughs> yeah. And I gotta tell you guys the the evidence I put together. So at the press, in the press, the prestige it happens uh, about one seventeen minute minutes in, or sorry, one hour seventeen minutes in. Uh, we have when he's telling the NGR, like, I can't go with you, you know. He's in the ho- he's in the hospital. He's like, I can't keep going with you. This is gonna the obsession will go drive you crazy. In Interstellar, we have Doctor Brand confessing to Murphy that he has no theory of gravity again about an hour and thirty minutes into the movie. <laughs> Um, in The Dark Knight, I said there was arguably no teary-eyed speech, but the Watching the World Burn happens at 54 minutes in. We Burn the Forest Down happens at an hour 30 wow. minutes in. It always is about an hour 20, hour 30. Batman Begins, you're getting lost inside this monster of yours. That happens at an hour 40. So what I found, and that was as far as I got. Unfortunately, I didn't finish the research. <laughs> but I did find somewhere around an hour 20, hour 40 into a Nolan movie, you can be pretty confident you're going to give Michael Caine getting a little teary-eyed and giving them the, like, I have to tell you the truth speech. I was just really astonished at the consistency for that one. That blew That's me away. really,
2: yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. I wish
0: I had finished John, it. I wish I had finished it for the rest John, of the movie. John,
1: we've movies. done many podcasts now, and this is by far your best work. That's astounding.
0: <laughs> this, <laughs> this, is, this is what they'll remember me This is amazing. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll have to finish this and give you guys the update when I have the rest of the information for that. Uh, but that's it for stray Thoughts. Stick around. After the break, we're going to have uh, a little dialogue diving deeper into the movie. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. For this section of the podcast, we call it the dialogue. Uh, we basically just want to try to talk about some of the implications maybe of the movie, try to re connect some of the ideas of what this brings up to the real world and just discuss some of these themes. There's a lot to unpack from this movie, but what we wanted to settle on was this idea about obsession and especially obsession and pursuit. Uh, let's maybe say of artistic perfection, of entertainment, of uh, a craft craftsmanship, I think those are all themes that we've sort of covered are very important to Nolan. Certainly it comes up in his movies a lot. And I think this movie is maybe like the best or the most succinct vision of that basic premise. The, the author becoming lost in their work, right? The performer going to these horrifying extreme lengths in order to capture this like obsessive vision that they have of, of their art, ultimately. I think it's pretty obvious that Nolan connects with this theme a lot. And obviously, as this very high-profile artist at this point, maybe the biggest director in the world, just in terms of name value, I think this is something that he's very concerned about. And, you know, I honestly don't know too much about his process, but it's not hard to imagine that he certainly at least views himself that way as as the obsessive in in pursuit of the perfect vision, right? Or the perfect version of his Mm. vision. I think what's interesting about that, first of all, is that it's a theme that has existed forever, right? The struggling artist, you know, you think back, um, you know, Taylor, you mentioned um, English being an English major, like, you know, you had to read Dubliners at some point, right? You had to read Portrait of the Artist at some point, and you get very familiar with that archetype. I think there's things about it that caused me to maybe roll my eyes a little bit because there was certainly a moment I think for a lot of people where you can assume that that is the only way to make mm. art, which I would, I would argue vehemently against having said that I also think it it is something that happens a lot. And I do think like the version of what you see in this movie, obviously I don't assume there's people out there who are going to the lengths of creating clones of themselves that then commit suicide. But I do think people go to really, really horrifying lengths, especially in the context of relationships in order to achieve something, you know, artistic at the end of it. And there is maybe a question in the air of like, is that something that's worth it? Is that something that's valuable? And certainly this movie I think is trying to ask that question. Um, But it's something that we maybe want to explore and that we maybe have thoughts on in terms of real life, um, artists and, and, you know, we've all done creative things to a certain degree. Um, so I guess Taylor, I, if you don't mind, I can throw it to you first. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of, is that maybe something you relate to or that you can see yourself in at all? Or is it something that you also kind of like me, maybe roll your eyes at that representation at this point? Maybe? Yes.
2: Um, yeah, I agree. I definitely, at this point in time, with where I am now, you know, Taylor in 2023, I do roll my eyes at it because I think it is a extremely common misconception about what it takes to make something meaningful. Like I, and I think it is particularly as you're, as you're saying like a persistent myth within art, like, because I think there's a lot of other things that, you know, activities and and projects and things that human beings do that we don't perceive this way, you know, as like something that requires like infinite sacrifice in order to, Uh, achieve well. You know, there's like, like just mundane things. People like, I don't know, train to become like nurses. And it's like, I don't know, you just, I mean, it takes, it takes sacrifice of the normal kind and that you have to like devote time to it and energy and Mm -hmm. then do it and then you're done. But I think that we have persistent myths about particularly things that relate to like art or entertainment, you know, that's like, this you must like give up everything in order to create this and i mean if if we're giving the film any credit you know it would be to say that it seems to be a a cautionary sort of like morality play about why sure. that is bad and why you shouldn't do it i mean you know it's other ethics aside which we've already you know gotten into but i do think that there's maybe an interesting thread here of like when i watched this film as a middle schooler you know that was definitely you know a perhaps a I mean, really like prior to when I would say I became an artist, you know, I hadn't really made anything yet. And I do think this films like this and things like it, you know, perhaps with the romance of them sort of influenced my thinking about what it took because I I definitely had a phase where I thought like, you know, art is the ultimate thing, you know, you must give up everything and, you know, put everything else on the line in order to make it. And I think as I'm older and in my thirties, I'm much less interested in that and much more like how can art reflect my actual life and be in healthy balance with like my relationships and, my mental health and, you know, getting enough sleep yeah. and drinking enough water <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that. The, yeah. uh,
0: <laughs> the, the sort of the, the word that came to mind is like, we sort of sanctify the suffering yes. for art mm. when it's just like any other suffering for something, it's it, there's nothing about it inherently to, to, to do that with. And yeah, and I, I totally agree. It's just something I'm not as interested in now, yeah. right? It, it's holistic creation is not only possible, but something that people have done forever. And is like, you know, that's a perfectly valid avenue as well. I totally agree with that.
2: And I think that like, you know, it's funny because I I think we sort of outlined why this film both like is a is a criticism of that type of approach. But maybe subtly is sort of an encouragement by the way that it like seems to actually kind of like these dudes, you know, (laughs) it doesn't it really kind of lets (laughs) them off the hook, especially Borden. And it's like, so I guess in a sense, it really did kind of pay
0: off for him, huh? You know, and it's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) This might be a weird connection, but it kind of makes me think about John Hammond in Jurassic Park because there's this really interesting argument. I think I made this when we did the podcast for it. There's this argument to be made that the character who's like pretty much a straight villain in the book that like Steven Spielberg as an author couldn't like not see himself in that character. Mm, And so instead of making him a straight villain, couldn't resist making him likable and kind of making him like understandable. Uh, And I almost wonder if the same thing isn't happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as per the text, these are just bad characters. Yes. But when making the movie, Nolan can't help but, like, give the entertainer something of himself because he sees too much yeah, of himself. And,
1: yeah, You know, I think that's spot on.
0: Um, Mike, do you have anything on that or just in general on this idea of, of, you know, that obsessive
1: pursuit? I mean, I think to put a bow on the previous comment, uh, yeah, it's what leads me to think that he does not condemn these characters is that I I see him speaking into them and finding himself in them way too much and I just don't think Nolan's the director that I have looked at who's like condemning himself in one of his movies um, at least not fully so I do think there is certainly what you just described taking place um, I think more broadly you know it's it's I have I, as someone who's just like deeply obsessed with history and both for my job I just have to spend a lot of time thinking about like historical movements when engaging the bible or but also like when i was in college you know poli sci and stuff i just think about this stuff a lot and and i've always been someone who's just pretty much flatly rejected the great man theory of history right i just do not believe that there is this person who like because they sacrificed and willed themselves hard enough to they change the world. You know what I mean? I just think that's almost always a oversimplification. Not almost. It just always is an oversimplification of usually much larger patterns. Like history makes people more than people make history. It's kind of the way mm. I always think about it. So all to say, like, when I think about these narratives we have about work and art and people who, uh, you know, changed everything because they had a singular focus and they sacrificed their entire world and health and relationships i think that's either one like that sort of mythology making in which someone is just like trying to oversimplify like what led them to make something that became popular um when in reality it wasn't their sheer will to create it was a whole bunch of factors that made whatever they created like accessible and far-reaching and and Lived for a long time in the imagination, people, right? So I think it's either people feeding that mythology making, or I think honestly, dude, half the time, and this is hypothesis, this isn't like grounded anything, uh, but from my experience, half the time it's also often self-justification. It's someone looking at yeah. their life yeah. and they've left relational wreckage or uh, a broken family or neglected children or any number of things from their workaholism. And they're just trying to justify it in some way. So of course, well, how am I going to do that? We're not going to be able to do that by looking at your kids and being like, ah, they're not so bad off though. I guess some <laughs> monsters do do that. You know, you hear some billionaires do stuff like that. Um, more than that though, they point to their work and they say, ah, but it was worth it. Right. Ah, but if I had not poured myself out fully into this thing, I wouldn't have created this monument this monstrosity, this world changing thing. Um, And that's kind of what I think about because like, honestly, I'm, I'm with you guys. Like I'm at a point in my life where I relate to the impulse of workaholism. Do not get me wrong. There's a part of me that will always struggle with like, if I just produce enough for other people, I will have meaning and value. And that's that's a deeply unhealthy narrative that I'm always working to deconstruct. But at the same time, I think I'm well past the point of being like, well, if I just devoted myself fully to X, Y, or Z, I could be whatever Caesar whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. like, I just don't think that's how it works. I'm not interested in those narratives. I don't think that's necessary to do good things or great things in this world. I think that's a delusion fundamentally, both what you will achieve by doing that and the necessity of it in general. So um, that was a lot, but I think when I come back down to it, that's kind of where I was thinking as you guys were talking was like, when you find people feeding this narrative, it is either to justify that great man of history thing or to justify one's own, loss or damage um, in the
2: pursuit of what they just wanted to do with their lives. And
1: i um, not super interested in feeding either of them.
2: I, I thought what you were saying was really interesting, Mike, about how it is almost always a perspective that is applied in hindsight, which, you mm. know, makes it, of course, like, kind of more insidious that that is the narrative that we often feed to younger people about, like, yes. what they need to do in order to be successful, right? It's like, you know what we should actually be telling them is like well you should probably like try to balance this you know with everything else and like you know make sure that you're maintaining your relationships and taking care of yourself and like you know like keeping your body healthy <laughs> and stuff like mm-hmm. that and like instead we tell them the you know the self-justifications like you know like written down by people who have you know potentially like destroyed their lives and just need something to cling to <laughs>
1: yeah and, and um, worse have often just gotten lucky Like, that's the worst part about it is, oh, you just got found at the right time. It had very little to do with effort, right? Um, Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just like, yeah, there is something very insidious about that. (laughs)
2: Yeah, totally. It's like, because those are the people who, like, I think I was kind of saying, like, the people who receive these stories and are, like, kind of, you know, taken with them. You know, because there is sort of, like, I think when you're a kid, at least, I mean, and this is just maybe me specifically, but I think it's probably true for a lot of people that, like, there is like some type of romance in the, you know, the person who like gives up everything in pursuit of some kind of higher goal until you like get older and realize both what that feels like if you experience it. I mean, I I haven't given up everything for art, but I like, you know, had some periods of my life where I was giving a lot of things to it and it was exhausting and terrible. And I stopped, you know, Mm. and, and that, it's until you do that. And until you kind of see the potential collateral damage and you like, we're talking about with this film, you get older and you like actually like take a real like sober look at like what happens to the women in this film outside of the lens of like maybe what the filmmaker is sort of trying to convince you. And you're like, Holy shit. Yeah. Like this is, this is not worth it, you know? And, um, and the last thought that I had too, I think, uh, and the, related to the the people self-justifying is that I, I can think of some examples of some artists that I that I admire in my own life who like sort of managed to like get escape velocity outside of this narrative while maybe being on a path towards destruction and how mm-hmm. like I, one who like, always comes to mind for me because he's just pretty famously written and sung a lot about it is Jeff Tweedy who's the lead singer of Wilco the band the the American band Wilco who was pretty deep into like some some drug addiction and stuff like at arguably what is was kind of the high point of that band's career and like got out of it successfully and like talks has been very public and vocal sense about being like I was sort of on a stupid path where I believed that like in order to create good art I needed to like basically mess myself up all the time I mean among other things because he was addicted for like very personal reasons too but like he was like, it's just not worth it. Like I came out of that being like, I need to like appreciate my family and like my bandmates as human beings and like the things that I've been given and like take care of my body. And like, so that I can sustainably make art in the way that I want to and for my entire life rather than crashing and burning, you know? And like, I think that when I was younger and like those narratives reached me from people like him, I was like, oh, this is an important counter narrative I think that I need to hear. And that a lot of people do. Um, one further thought that I had on that too, which I think is, is interesting, uh, given what we're just talking about in the film that we're watching is that I, and I'm curious if either of you have more context on this, but my understanding at some point in time is that Christian Bale is a pretty famous method actor, Oh yeah. um, which yeah. sort of, I feel like is an interesting, uh, confluence with these themes where it's like, I, I feel like people who are method actors are notorious sometimes for like, kind of not having great boundaries around their method of creation. And Seems interesting to have a person who does that be playing a main character in a film that seems to be about cautioning against doing that. I, do y'all have any thoughts on that?
0: I'm sure it's something that he recognized and connected with when he took the role. I'm, I'm sad to say I didn't do any research on... Because n- now that you say that, that seems so obvious. It's actually crazy that, you know, the the famously obsessive method actor is playing a performer who's obsessive to an unhealthy yeah. degree about his performance. Yeah. And I, I, what I can speak to is like part of his journey was eventually succumbing to medical advice to like stop huh. that to the degree that he used to. I remember seeing an interview with him. What's funny is I can't remember if this interview was before or after Vice, because he I I know some of that's makeup, but he does get a lot oh, of weight. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, but puts on some weight for that. But I I think it was mostly centering around the time when he was like back and forth between kind of around here, like the machinist right. and dark night and and all of that where he was like i dropped 200 pounds i gained 160 you know whatever and i remember that interview because he sort of was reckoning within the interview about the level of like like my body not being able to keep up with my ambition right like that was how he was framing it was that he was almost like disappointed in the idea that his doctors were telling him like you can't sustainably do this and that he was like very resistant to it. And then whenever that interview was, I wish I could have found it, but whenever that interview was at that time, he was just like, I accept that that's true, but it's it's like d- disappointing to me, um, which is a fantastic vision of exactly yeah. what this is talking about, right? That like someone could be confronted with like, hey, and I think all of us would agree while we, uh, while like, you know, he obviously knows more about acting than us, but did Christian Bale losing 200 pounds, was that like strictly speaking necessary right. for that role in The Machinist, Mike? Like, I don't know, you know, yeah. like again, who are we to say? But also, like, I can't, you can't really convince me that he has to go to unhealthy lengths to in order for the performance to be good, right? Um, just one anecdote too. I, I love the story. So, Dustin Hoffman, famous um, method actor as well, there's a pop, possibly semi pop apocryphal story about he was on set with Peter O'Toole one day and he was telling him the story about um I think it was Peter O'Toole but he was telling him a story about this character that was like crazy in a movie that he was doing and in order to portray the character he Dustin Hoffman stayed awake for two days straight so that he could have this manic you know whatever and uh, apparently Peter O'Toole kind of looked at him for a second and then said my boy have you ever tried acting (laughs) yeah (laughs) which it's just a great, but it sort of speaks of this, yeah. right? Because there's this almost dichotomy of how you approach these kinds of crafts sometimes, where it's like this one vision that you have to go to these insane lengths, but this other vision of like, hey, you can do this and still be just a human, yeah, who's who's you know still still fully holistic as your approach. Yeah. That's a great. Um, that's
2: that quip is great because it's like, I mean, I'm I'm not an actor. I I, I feel like I'm completely an amateur in the understanding of the craft, but it is sort of like a funny like. Yeah. You don't have to like be the character, you know, like yeah. you are, you are pretending. <laughs> I mean, and I guess I, I see of course the angle of like the more you can fully embody the character, the more real it is going to seem. But I, I feel like the core of that comment is like, it is, it is an act. It is a performance, you know, like you don't, yeah, I don't know.
0: Almost like it's almost getting at the idea of like keeping things in perspective, yeah, yeah, Really, yeah. right. Of, of just like the basic thing of like, yes, you can be committed to this and can, you know, push yourself to do it well and all of that. But it's reasonable. You should be reasonable in your approach to it. You should be sane in your approach to it. That, you know, maybe there should have been a moment when you were telling yourself, I have to go down to like 105 pounds for this movie, or I have to stay up for two days straight. Or what did Daniel DeLewis do for Last of the Mohicans? I think he built a log cabin right. by himself. Yeah, that would, that, I love that uh, one. That would maybe me. there's a moment in the midst of that where you could tell yourself, like, hey, at the end of the day i'm making a movie and it's not actually you know and, and like keep that perspective maybe there's value to that i guess is sort of if there is a lesson in all yeah but, like it's um, it's all artifice yeah.
2: right i mean that's i feel like and maybe that's easier for me to say because you know my chosen medium is sound which is you know it, it is Inherently, it's obvious that it's right, artifice yeah. and let alone like i make like instrumental music right you know yeah. i don't it's it's very obviously artificial and not like me you know, it's some extension of me, but it is not myself. But I think that, yeah, that does sort of seem to be the lesson, right, is like, you know, art is expression, art is like some extension of you, but it doesn't have to be fully you, and you can still take care of you in the process of doing it.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh we do have a final question that we have prepared. Mike and I, I think have prepared for each other. I will phrase it for everyone. Taylor, you're still you're still here. Absolutely. You're still on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You won't be here next week though on the next episode, we are going to be discussing when Harry met Sally, the 1989, I think basically prototypical rom-com yeah, I think like that's certainly fair. the for the resurgence of them because I think kind of like golden age Hollywood technically, but for the modern version of it let's say yeah uh written by nora efron directed by rob reiner and of course starring starring billy crystal our and first Meg nora
1: Ephron movie
0: hmm. that and also like just a very interesting cast of people who i think like don't have the same cultural weight today as they sure did out. 30 years ago like just very interesting names all across one of my favorite movies so we're, we're gonna have a lot of fun uh but before that we do have to round out our conversation about the prestige mike why don't you go first final question
1: Hmm, John. Actually, this is just a curiosity. First of all, do you like magic? And second of all, did y'all have a magic phase as a kid or an adult? I don't want to be <laughs> a brood about it.
0: Be judging. Judge- yeah, if you're like oh, I Well, Mike, I'm in it right now. Uh, I was just came back from magic camp yesterday, and I'm offended. Frankly, that's fine. Uh, you know, child. No, uh, like a child. A <laughs> a yes, broadly. I wouldn't say I love magic. I like magic. I just like, I feel like the, the dressing around the magic is often pretty like, like cringy mm, You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's just, it's just often f- framed in a way that I'm like, yeah, I get it. Uh, I can move on. Love oh. me those David Blaine specials though. Those were a heck of a lot of fun. I also subscribe to, this is a bit I'm pulling from a show that Mike and I, or a podcast Mike and I listened to. Uh, they actually mentioned this a lot on the Ringer podcast, but I do subscribe to the belief that Harrison Ford on the David Blaine special was like one of the greatest moments of pop culture in sure, American history. Sure, probably. sure, yeah. Uh, Tara, have I you have seen not, this? I not. Well, I, I don't want to spoil you it, wanna, but basically, you see David an old Blaine... man
1: find childhood wonder again. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs>
0: David Blaine <laughs> performs a magic trick in Harrison Ford's home, and the man genuinely tears up. Wow! That is like it is, is is it's a very moving moment. Uh, great times all around for that. But yeah, I think I had a magic phase as a kid. Sure, yeah, I you know. Like, did you ever to... get
1: like a deck of the cards or whatever and try to oh, learn a
0: trick? no, I myself never yeah, kind of tried about. to okay. learn magic. Okay. Sorry, I, I started watching a lot of stuff, but no, I never tried to yeah. do that. That seemed too hard. Taylor? I
2: actually did very explicitly have a magic phase. Um, nice. Yeah. I think
0: I remember yeah, this we actually. Were, we were probably already friends yeah. at that
2: point. Like my parents bought me a kit. And, like, I I don't remember exactly what was in it, but there was, like, you know, like, a shell game and, like, some, like, string tricks. I feel like I was terrible at the card stuff because I have, like, no dexterity. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it happened. Uh, and then I then I stopped, like, most people who have magic phases, I feel like. Um,
0: well, it seems to always be a phase. Yeah. yeah. And tough. I think
2: that I, I, like, in terms of the question of, like, do I like magic? I think that I do. I... I have been told by people close to me that, like, I am definitely one of those people who, like, the second it is over, I ruin the fun by immediately trying to deconstruct the the technical yeah. aspects of how it happened. Yeah. And I, I recognize that that's some real killjoy behavior, and it's just kind of who I am. But I do enjoy it while it's I happening. I disagree
0: with your friends though, because isn't that part of the fun yeah, of watching so. magic? Is immediately having the conversation I, I about think, like, well, how did they I do that? I think the
2: problem is that like my approach is not like one of wonder. My one is my approach is more one of like, okay, I mean like let's break it down, guys. Like this is how it went down. Which is
0: okay. So physically <laughs> they could not have solved the woman. So yeah, yeah. no, I, I got you. Mike, what about you? You have a magic face?
1: I didn't. No, I mean I was into like David Blaine, but even then I mostly like the. The skits on YouTube of David played street magic. Thought those were funny, um, more than the actual set. Um, yeah, I, I really didn't. I don't dislike magic, but I definitely never tried to practice it. Never got a set. Never been super enthralled by
0: it. gonna be honest. Yeah, that's fair. Uh my final question. Little bit, little bit weird. We're gonna run. We're gonna run with it. Though we're gonna see what happens. Mike and Taylor, if you were hypothetically leading a double life where you were actually a twin who's been passing herself off as one person, what would be, you know, besides the horrifying like implications about, I don't know, consent and like emotional intimacy and all of that horrible stuff. If we just kind of sideline that, what would be the wor- the most frustrating, like daily inconvenience? What would you like at this point you would say like, I'm ready to finally say, I'm sick of sharing my food with this, this guy is, or, this you know, is, whatever it happens. Yeah, to Yeah. This
1: is so easy for me. I have, I have, yeah. uh, I've done a couple of like youth theater things and wearing stuff on my face is awful. Like, Oh, so it's the, it's, it's just the fake mustache. You, it's being <laughs> just, the other person. Yeah. The disguise just, is what like would a be the issue. Fake mustache glued to my face for like eight hours. Oh God. No
0: hard pass i like the idea of you eventually like the first day you guys are trying this you just like rip off the. the, yeah i'm just like i can't do this i can't (laughs) can't do do this (laughs) i'm done i'm out whoever you're talking to is like holy shit mike there's two of you (laughs) yeah i think taylor what would be i think it would be
2: like like minor stuff like items that you share that you sort of need on your person at all times but like only one of you is gonna have like like you have to remember like who has the driver's license or the key (laughs) or whatever and it's just like oh god damn it i needed the driver's license and that guy has it um so it's that and i think it's like other types of like like personal hygiene type things like it's like okay well you only have one shower in your house so like you know when I don't know like how if you're both like hanging around like I guess maybe in the context of the film it's like oh Fallon's coming over and Fallon needs to take a shower <laughs> or something. It's still, like, there's
0: still like a logistical yeah. There's something about like trying to figure out all of those interlocking things of like wait a second you know we only got one meal we only ordered one exactly. takeout so now we have he to, has you to know, go whatever. find
2: food. It's like death by a thousand cuts. You know like it's like all these little tiny things that would be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you would do that. I guess you don't, you don't do it. That's you shouldn't do it.
0: <laughs> if it's not obvious by the hot take, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't do, do it. We're just saying it. We're, we're, we're going out on a limb here. Uh, my answer, if it's not obvious, because every example I've brought up is this is I wouldn't be the down for sharing the food. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I, I'd, I'd, at some, I'd be, I'd very quickly be like, this isn't going to work. Cause I'd, and I know I'm not even like a hangry kind of person. I don't think, but, I think there's just like, I, I, I choose my portions very carefully and the idea of having to choose them and then split them or like, you know, passing myself off as someone who just eats double portions of everything. I just couldn't do it. It'd be tough. Wouldn't yeah. like it. Um, so yeah, that's the, you know what? I think that's the best point we can end on. If you're out there and you're considering leading a double life with your twin, we're all just going to say pretty unanimously. Right. I think don't, don't do, it. do it too much of a hassle. Too much of a hassle and also emotional damage. Just gaslit women the old-fashioned way. And, yeah. <laughs> it's good It's good to end on a good note, a uh, good wholesome note for the kids here. Anything else you guys have on the prestige?
3: You're
1: nope. a wizard, Johnny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you, Taylor, for of joining course. us. Of
1: course. Yeah, happy
2: to be here. Yeah.
0: Thanks. See you guys on the next
3: episode. I like
1: to think of that last one as my prestige i